Good evening, or good morning, or good afternoon. This is Lighting the Pipes, episode... Mm, episode 2, season 2. Episode 2, season 2. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Episode uh, 2.5, I suppose, BFG, if we're going by the books, because our first episode was an intro and a preview to the year. Ah, that's right. What are we uh, covering in this in this season? I think we're covering, I believe, uh, Manette Walters or something. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's Raymond Chandler. It yes. is Raymond uh, Chandler. The King of Noir. Mm-hmm. So, uh, last episode, we talked about his first novel, The Big Sleep, as well as a little detail into his personal life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would episode, say a lot of detail into his personal life. I think he did a great job setting the stage for um, Raymond Chandler as a writer. So I wouldn't say a little bit. I would say a lot. And hats off to you, sir. Ah, well, thank you so much. So last episode, we talked about his first novel, The Big Sleep. And now we'll be talking about his second Philip Marlowe adventure, Farewell, My Lovely. Farewell, my lovely. Do you know, Josh, yes. just before you go on, um, I'd like to apologize to our listeners because it has been something of a big sleep between our episodes, hasn't there? Oh, oh, oh. There has a little <laughs> bit of a big sleep. Yeah, really yes, really uh, Lots of stuff going on in the world, as you may know, and that also, you know, creates repercussions in our regular day, regular day lives. Sure where does. We've been busy with work. We've been busy with family. We've been busy with creating our bubble of 10 people. We've been busy with... Other podcasts as well, Mm -hmm. uh, such as our Bond by Numbers podcast, um, which you may or may not have listened to yet. And I myself have been working on my own projects, shameless plug, uh, Free the Greeks, which is a historical podcast about the Peloponnesian War. Uh, What Peloponnesian means? Well, if you want to know, listen to my podcast. (laughs) Every syllable explained. (laughs) Every syllable explained. Yes, indeed. Uh, But... Welcome, everybody, to the second episode. Uh, Josh and I are really happy to be back together. It has taken us, jokes aside, it has taken us a little bit longer to get to this episode than, yes. uh, than, than we had originally planned. We know it's been a while, but at the same time, we also wanted to make sure that when we got to it, we did it properly. And we took our time. We did have our little projects and family. And of course, we're all uh, still learning to adjust to the different stages and phases of the COVID-19 lockdown. Um, and, and so, you know, uh, apologies if indeed you were, and I doubt you were, but if you were sitting at the edge of your uh, your edge of your laptop waiting for this to drop, um, we would be flattered if that were the case. But I think we all know that there's lots of great podcasts out there for, for you to listen to and lots of other yes. things to do. But having... Podcasting provides a, uh, like a niche for any kind of subject you're interested in. So that's the fun of podcasts for sure. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, we, we hope that you are doing well wherever you're listening to us and that you're staying safe. And uh, whether it's a bubble of 10 or a family of four, um, we hope that you're managing to enjoy as best you can the challenging environment that we all find ourselves in. Because, Josh, this is uh, strange days indeed, isn't it? It is strange days indeed. Um, even stranger days, imagine the time uh, where Raymond Chandler was writing this book. This was around the same time that uh, the Hitler invaded or annexed Czechoslovakia. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the time where you know, the, the, the phony war began and then eventually the, the first, the second world war. So, I mean, we're in a situation now, but can you imagine, you know, the anxieties that were going on at that time, especially for a man born in Britain, living in America, uh, when in, in, in a war that America had not yet, you know, placed its stake in. 
That's true. Uh, and in America, that was still under isolationism. Um, that was still trying to get out of, you know, its economic depression. Um, I mean, you had the New Deal going on through FDR, but there was still a lot of things that had to be checked and a lot of things that had to be, had to be done in order to bring back the status quo they had prior to, you know, the Great Depression. Yeah. So lots of uh, checks very, and balances. So it was a, it was a different time. Um, and there was a lot of also, too, there was a lot of uh, pro-fascist groups developing in America. And so, uh, you know, even though, you know, this is a, a unique situation that we're in now, in terms of the cultural impact that such a situation has, um, you can you can somewhat parallel it to what mm -hmm. uh, the world Raymond Chandler was like at the time when he was writing Farewell, My Lovely. Yeah, I suppose any great cultural or geographical upheaval or in this case, epidemiological up upheaval is going to have and, and kind of showcase similar trends yes. in terms of and among the public. But it appears COVID is the Nazi Germany of viruses. Well, thus far, at least. But we'll see, thus far, yeah. We'll see what comes out of it, won't we? I mean, there's always someone else, some, something else coming out of the woodworks, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But well, uh, that's enough on enough on that. I, I think you know we know the world that we are in right now. Let's just get back to you know to the world of Philip Marlowe. Uh, and just in general, uh, the world of, you know, mystery novels, which is which is great escapism, gritty and realistic escapism, nonetheless, but still escapism. Absolutely. And that's what this show is all about, lighting the pipes. Um, in case you're new to the show, Josh and I started out with uh, a, a mission, I suppose you could call it that, um, a project, better better phrase. To survey all of Arthur yeah. Conan Doyle's work on a single podcast. Mm -hmm. Series, series, not and a we, single and podcast. And we did that. We that did that quite very, well. That very, very long podcast. Mm -hmm. We did that quite well, and uh, we're glad that so many of you have enjoyed what we did there. And after we did the Holmes, we decided, yeah, this is us. Let's let's keep this mystery thing going. So we chose yes. a different author, and we're going to go through that author's work. And we decided yes. to go with Chandler because um, he is sort of a descendant of Sherlock Holmes in an American sort of style and in a very different time, as Josh very uh, expertly laid out for us last episode. Mm -hmm. And um, Farewell, My Lovely is the second book in the Philip Marlowe sweep, if indeed we can call it that. And and Josh and I have gone away. We've That's done our notes. If That's it is, true. If it is yeah. a sweep or not. We don't know if these are going to be standalone episodic. We're not sure on this yet. So. Not yet. It, it, it will reveal itself as we go along. Mm -hmm. And those of you listening who know, then you can play the home game and uh, read along with us and see what you think of our takes on these stories. Um, Light in the Pipes is dedicated to great crime fiction, and we know that there's a whole mountain of it out there that we haven't yet had time to explore, but we got to start somewhere, and thinking about Sherlock Holmes being a good start has uh, propelled us into this environment now. So uh, come along on this ride with us. We're yes. very glad you've joined us, and uh, thank you very much for listening. Just to kind of as a breeze into, uh, you know, the world of the mystery novel uh, before we delve into Farewell, My Lovely, um, let's talk about what's going on in the world of uh, the mystery novel, in the world of Sherlock Holmes, even. Um, lawsuit. I under lawsuit, yeah. Mm, lawsuit. So, Court action. Yeah. If anyone's seen the BBC show Sherlock uh, in, in the final season, and this is a spoiler, so if you have watched Sherlock and you don't want to hear about this, then... Fast forward about, I don't know, a minute or two or, or, th <laughs> or three. But even though this character was introduced in a series of novels in the 2000s, the last season of Sherlock established that Sherlock Holmes has a sister named Enola, who does not appear in the Arthur Conan Doyle canon mm -hmm. whatsoever. 
I mean, Moriarty has more of a presence in the Arthur Conan Doyle canon than <laughs> Enola Holmes. Um, so what's going on is, is that there's a Netflix show based on her life starring Millie Bobby Brown from Stranger Things. Everyone knows about her. Uh, then, of course, uh, the man of the hour, the witcher himself, uh, Henry Cavill as Sherlock Holmes. Um, and this is a series coming on Netflix in which the state of Arthur Conan Doyle uh, is suing. Um, what details did you say that you had on that, uh, Scott? Well, the, the the full court transcript, or I, I, I suppose I should say the um, the complaint is available online. You can just get this in a PDF and read through the legal value of it yourself if you wish. Technology, but it, it, eh? it essentially yeah, it essentially distills down to the the estate of Conan Doyle suing um, uh, suing Netflix over the representation of the Holmes character, and particularly well, not particularly, but you know, certain sound bites have been clipped right for the media's purpose and sort of saying this or saying that. But it's essentially a, a, a character. Uh, change and his sympathy towards women and, and things like that, which I suppose um, is not a bad thing for a character to character to have. But in in I suppose what the public would perceive as a continued evolution of this character's life, changing key features of his personality uh, is equable to um, to rewriting character yeah, DNA. Yeah, they can't, they can't have Superman, you know, like, not emote, unfortunately. I mean, mm, yeah, I'm sure yeah. Cavill is very pop, is very good. I mean, I like Henry Cavill. I think he's a nice guy and stuff, but he does come off wooden sometimes, so I think he could have easily have done Sherlock Holmes. But, <laughs> but, but no, that's not true, because even, you have to be an emotional actor to play, I think, someone like Sherlock Absolutely, Holmes. Absolutely, yeah. In my opinion, yeah. because you got to know the opposite of what you're doing, right? Yeah. And you've got to have moments where you can explode, too. Yeah, like, sorry, I, you know. I didn't mean to attack Henry Cavill. My mom and my sister are big fans, so they don't listen to this podcast anyway. So. <laughs> no. Lock your windows so Superman doesn't blast through at night. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, that, I mean, that, that basically amounts it. I mean, there's more detail you can get online about that, and we don't want to take up too much of our program today talking about it. But yes, certainly in the world of Sherlock Holmes, there is this lawsuit filed against Netflix by the estate of Conan Doyle having to do with um, the manipulation of and, I suppose, reconstituting of character. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I remember there was a whole fuss when uh, after Sherlock debuted and it had his whole legion of fans. And then all of a sudden, they, the CBS decided to adapt Sherlock Holmes and they did that series elementary. Mm -hmm. But from what from what I understand is that that was actually very kind of faithful to the canon in its own different way. Yeah, I'm thinking, Josh, you and I have spoken, haven't we, at great length about maybe together dipping our toes into the elementary show and watching yeah, it show by show. I am I'm definitely yeah. down for that because yeah. it, it it is on Amazon now, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I'm going I'm going to check that out. And speaking of Amazon, uh, finally uh, I was able to see uh, Knives Out, which is now available yeah, on there. Yeah, great and, great film. Yeah, nice ties yeah. to our other show as well. Uh, yeah, Daniel Craig in the role. Daniel Craig, yeah, absolutely. Um, but just in general, though, uh, yeah, Knives Out is a brilliant film by Ryan Johnson. Now, Ryan Johnson um, first kind of started out. He did he directed some like fantastic episodes of Breaking Bad, particularly almost like the near season series finale. It, well, it wasn't a series finale, but it was very close to it. Um, Ozymandias, which is just an incredible episode of television. And I guess for some reason um, that made Lucasfilm interest. And also his films like Brick, uh, which is kind of like a high school noir starring mm -hmm. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I fully recommend. Uh, he, had a, he did a very interesting science fiction film called Looper, also starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis. And it was an interesting concept um, I don't think it was quite pulled off as some people thought it thought it was. I think that it kind of had some flaws, but it was still an interesting movie. And I was glad to see, you know, someone 
interested in making movies like that. It's always good to see. Yeah. Um, and speaking yeah. of Ryan Johnson, by the way, and Knives Out, um, Ryan Johnson's partner, Karina Longworth, has mm -hmm. her own podcast, You Must Remember This, which is all about the golden age of Hollywood and sort of the darker side. Oh, of really? Contracting. It's fantastic. Really, really good show. And I mean, she does not need me boosting her show. She's got thousands and thousands of listeners. But I, I would just like to mention it here on our show because a lot of the tie-ins with like Hollywood business and, uh, mm. you know, you, you can kind of get the seediness of L.A. in a lot of what it is is she's producing yes. and her, her uh, research is fantastic the episodic nature like she she you knows she'll do like mini series of stuff right like so yes. i was i was listening to a little mini series on her show about song of the south and disney and uh, um, uh, yeah exactly and all about uh, uh, you know we'll some of these into, big uh, producer names the, of the early days oh for sure yeah uh, there's the hollywood's contract system the star system uh the whole studio system itself was that was like a, a juggernaut and you can kind of see even even up until this day how it still pervades and stuff like that you know where you get figures like weinstein for example mm -hmm. it's that it's they're made by that system you know what i mean yeah, yeah. well anyway uh, it, uh, unfortunately, uh, unfortunately uh, because they also did some great work and a lot of them loved loved art and and and, and making films so mm -hmm. you know just, just like in everyday in any business regardless there's always shitty people that work in it unfortunately of course and, yeah you know and hopefully you know we'll see changes in that so Maybe there's something going on in the world that will change things for the good, and and we just gotta you know deal with some of the upheaval that is causing, and, and maybe it, when it when it boils over and calms down, you know we might have a whole different type of world going for us. So um, that's my optimistic view of things, anyway. Huh. And in the spirit of uh, talk, uh, you know, talking about these good, the bad, and the ugly, uh, shall we mosey on over to getting down to our story, or you got more to share? Well, no, I was just going to mention, I, I did mention Knives Out, and I just wanted to say that, yeah, it was a great, fantastic film. Ryan Johnson did a great job. Um, I do hope that, I, from what I understand, is he plans to bring his Daniel Craig character, Benoit Blanc, back for another mystery. Um, I even heard a rumor that he might have a different accent in the, in the next movie, just for the fun of it. Um, I, I, I don't know. But it was a great deconstruction of the mystery novel, the typical mystery story. Um, just as a bit of a spoiler, but not going to reveal it, you do know who does the murder earlier on in the film and the whole movie is built around that which is really interesting mm -hmm. so do do check ryan johnson's knives out he's got a great cast daniel craig in a role that really fits him i think post bond um on top of that you know you got great performances by jamie lee curtis by tony collette by christopher Plummer in particular and that and and, and the and the up-and-coming rising star uh, anna daramas uh, uh, as well who connected back to her bond cast is also going to be um james bond girl so good mm -hmm. for her but good mention about Ryan Johnson's wife and her podcast, because that definitely brings us back to, you know, the golden age of Hollywood and just the seediness of L.A. politics in general. Um, let's talk about, uh, you know, Raymond Chandler and that period. And then, of course, his novel, uh, Farewell, My Lovely. Okay, let's get into it then, uh, BFG. And just before we do, just a reminder that Lighten the Pipes here on the show, we like to score all of the stories mm -hmm. that we read, big or small, by our Pipes acronym. P for principles. Us and our acronyms. Us and our acronyms. P for principles. I for investigation. Uh, P for perpetrators. E for environs, our settings. And S for the secondary characters that play a role in the story. We give marks up uh, zero to five. Uh, for each component, and then we got a total of 25. And so at yep. the end of our discussion today, we are going to be scoring Farewell, My Lovely, just as we did with The Big Sleep, 
by using our acronym PIPES. Now, Josh, would you like me to remind yourself of your score for The Big Sleep? Yes, please. I'm, I, I think I was pretty favorable to it. Well, the, yeah, I mean, we, we, both, we both were generous and favorable towards it. Uh, you gave it a 19.5 overall. I gave it an 18.5 overall, and that is out of 25. All right, us. Okay, all right, us. So, yeah, we're our, our PIPES acronym. Oh, fantastic. So then, my friend, welcome back. Glad to have you and the listeners along. Let's get straight to business. Talk a little bit, would you, about what Chandler's up to when this book comes out and, indeed, how it came about. Yeah. So now a lot of this information I get from not just Wikipedia and other sources, but I also, as I mentioned in my previous episode, uh, a great book by Tom Williams called The Mysterious Something in the Light, uh, which is a line from The Big Sleep. It's called The Life of Raymond Chandler. Uh, it's just a great biography on Raymond Chandler, uh, his, his life and his works. And um, I've been using him as a, as a source for um, for the podcast. So in 1939, after the publication of The Big Sleep, Ray and Sissy were living in Riverside, California. Its Mediterranean climate was good for Sissy's lungs, which weren't doing too well. She was well, she was into her 70s at this point. Um, the Californian diversity of weather allowed them to flit back and forth to different getaways. Uh, we mentioned that there was Big Bear Lake that they went to in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was also La Jolla, which was a, a community that uh, retired, kind of a smaller, kind of like upper upper scale community that, that they stayed in, in the, uh, I guess, at the cooler time of the year. So in between this moving around, Ray decided to start on his next novel. As discussed, his critical reception was mixed, but The Big Sleep had sold quite well, and Blanche Knopf was on the line asking for another book. If you recall, uh, Blanche Knopf, uh, who was basically the wife of Alfred A. Knopf, she was in charge of the mystery division of that p- publishing company. Now, there were many distractions before Ray started writing what, what would become the final draft of Farewell, My Lovely. For one, his plan was to eventually move from detective fiction genre and take on projects that he had been brewing in his head for years. Despite the profits made from the big sleep, it had already sold 10,000 copies and he had collected two grand in royalties. He laid about plans for the next few years, which included an outline to his future novels. In addition to another detective fiction, he had planned a satire of the same genre, two more detective novels, and finally a breakout project that he hoped would see him back in England if it was successful. And this was a novel with the working title of English Summer. Uh, it was supposed to be, and this is according to uh, Chandler's own words, a short, swift, gorgeously written melodrama based on my short story. The surface theme is the decay of the refined character and its contrast with the ingenuous, honest, utterly fearless and generous type American of the best type. Hmm. So it seems like he's going for like kind of like even though I mean he says he's going to bring him to England. It seems Mm -hmm. to me that he's also kind of writing in his own way the great American slash British expat novel, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, Maybe he wants to see himself like a Fitzgerald or something like Mm -hmm. that or Mm -hmm. E.M. Forrester or something along those lines. Right. Maybe he wants to go in that direction. And that was his plan. He didn't always want to write mystery novels his whole life. He didn't want to be stuck into one genre. So uh, as w- Tom Williams says here, uh, it was a waypoint on the route to something else. Indeed. Um, so with Sissy and Knopf's support, he began his next novel by rereading The Big Sleep to see its faults. Uh, the Big Sleep had published in England as well with some success under Hamish Hamilton, who held the novel in high esteem. This made him a tad ambitious and he couldn't decide what he wanted to write. He came up with a short, short, a short story titled The Girl at Brunettes, which would eventually, after many distractions, become Farewell, My Lovely. 
After only five days and 127 pages, he abandoned the story for a shorter story, unfortunately, and returned to it again and then abandoned it and then gave up on all of his current ideas to pursue his English summer novel. He was not making the progress that he wanted. Hmm. I, I know the feeling. Yeah, so just an idea about when you know when he was looking over the when he was reading the Big Sleep in the meantime and just trying to pick it apart and it's this flurry of activity carefully detailed in his diary and recounted years later to his lawyer sheds an unusual amount of light on Ray's writing method, revealing the patterns in his approach. He wrote his book scene by scene and rarely, if ever, knew where the plot would take him. His use of stories helped provide a framework for a book, but it was not a rigid one. Sometimes an old pulp story would provide a scene or character, sometimes more, but they rarely provided a conclusion. This was the problem in trying to entwine two plots. Sometimes it worked, as in the case of The Big Sleep, but not always. This lack of direction caused Ray endless problems, the most difficult being the necessity of stitching together a lot of unconnected events to make a seamless whole. Time and experience would eventually help him refine his method, but in early 1939, he was still feeling his way as a writer. So he did not yet fully understand his strengths or his weaknesses, and in a morass of half-formed ideas, he struggled to identify a clear way which caused him to fret, further hampering his ability to concentrate. I think anyone writing in any particular uh, fashion would would agree with that assessment, you know, of, mm-hmm. yeah, of, for sure. of his mental state while he's writing. You know what I mean? And I think that kind of captures also the way that he does write. He writes things uh, scene by scene. Um, as I guess he and he feels the plot as it goes along. He doesn't, uh, you know, plan everything uh, all, you know, he doesn't plan everything like uh, uh, trying to think of trying to think of the word here, if you can help me. Um, He doesn't meticulously meticulously. Yeah, I guess that's what you could say. Uh, As he says, tragic realization that there is another dead cat under the house, more than three quarters done and no good. (laughs) (laughs) One of his main distractions, though, was the start of the Second World War. He truly believed, if anyone, that could withstand Adolf Hitler, it was the British. His patriotism had him attempt to be recruited with the Canadian Army again, but at 50 years old, they would not take him. Mm -hmm. How far did he engage in that sort of, um, that that looking into it? Uh, For for quite a bit, but I mean, the thing is that America was was not involved in the war at at that time. And so he really had no other option. He, so the Canadian Army, which would have been basically part of the British Army in that in that context, um, that was the closest that he could go without having to go all the way back to England to re- mm-hmm. to be recruited. Mm-hmm. But they rejected him based on his age; he was fifty years old, right? So, and at that time, I don't think Dun I don't I don't think Dunkirk had occurred or anything along those lines, right? It was it wasn't a, it wasn't a huge enlistment thing as of yet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so they weren't, you know, maybe a couple of year or a year or two later, they might t- t- took him on or something, but it's, uh, it's hard to say. Uh, his patriotism had him attempt to be recruited with the Canadian Army, as I mentioned, and uh, he and Sissy had headed back to Big Bear Lake when Riverside became too hot for them, and he put some hard work on the first draft of what would become Farewell, My Lovely, but it wasn't enough to damper his patriotism and helplessness to do anything, you know, and his helplessness overall that he that he that he felt because he could not do anything to help his to help the cause. So his work suffered. And despite the royalties he had acquired from the big sleep, the bills began to add up. So he had to start writing again. He wrote a story for the slicks instead of the of black mask. Thanks for the urging of his agent called I'll be waiting, which was published in the Saturday evening post. His next short story was actually a sci-fi fantasy called the bronze door. And it's really interesting. Um, so the bronze door is set in London. The main character, James Sutton Cornish, is an unhappily married man with drinking pro- with a drinking problem who returns home one day. 
He is drunk, of course, to an angry wife who is in the process of leaving him. And this is from Tom Williams here. She looked at him horribly, turned again, said over her shoulder, this is the end, James, the end of our marriage. Mr. Sutton Corners said appallingly, goodness, my dear, are we married? She started to turn again, but didn't. A very Marlowe response. Uh, a sound like somebody being strangled in a dungeon came from her. Then she went on. So, uh, you know, this could possibly be a parallel to Ray and Sissy when they had their bad time after he got, when he got fired with um, the oil company. And then eventually they, they you know, they had, had a separation for a while, right? And then yeah. eventually they got back together. But, of course, that was a bit of a... Um, not a happy, not not happy period in Ray's life and in their relationship. Okay, so now, we've got farewell, my lovely burning, but it's not burning hot yet on the exactly. on the on the stove top. Ex- exactly. So with the bronze door, uh, Tom Williams goes on to describe it. Uh, the, kind of just the main part of it is that Sutton Cornish's life. Now that's a very kind of uh, a name for a character that's meant to be like stereotypically English, in my opinion. Uh, takes a strange turn when, on leaving his house, he tries to call a handsome cab, and the driver does not seem to know about World War One. It gets decidedly weirder when in, when, in, when in an auction room, he comes across a strange bronze door that has the power to make the people who pass through it vanish into thin air. Intrigued and fascinated, he lobbies the door, and inevitably he uses it to make his wife and her annoying dog disappear. Sutton Cornish meets his comeuppance, though, when a police officer from Scotland Yard starts to investigate. Having failed to push the policeman through the door, Sutton Cornish ends up vanishing himself. Uh, William says, you know, it's a strange story, but it presented in a thoroughly natural way. And that is a key to its success. Here is the moment when Sutton Cornish finished, first discovers the door's powers. He straightened and with a pleasantly idle gesture, thrust his stick forward through the opening. And then for the second time that evening, something incredible happened to him. Mr. Sutton Cornish looked down at his gloved right hand. There was no stick in it. There was nothing in it. He stepped to one side and looked behind the door. There was no stick there on the dusty floor. He had felt nothing. Nothing had jerked at him. The stick had merely passed part way through the door, and then it had merely ceased to exist. So he wanted to make the story feel real, despite the fantastical elements. Hmm. So it's definitely one to pick up if you want to check see how he handles sci-fi or fantasy or whatever the heck that is. A lot of the folk that we follow on Instagram uh, are kind of pulp bookstores and uh, real interesting readers like that. So I'm, I'm maybe maybe some of them will have already had uh, access to and you know experience with that story. Well, that's very possible. So let us know if indeed uh, that that's worth a shout. So yeah, with the project completed, you know he began he returned to Farewell, My Lovely, and Ray and Sissy found their usual winter quarters, La Jolla, too hot and damp. So Sissy's lungs suffered, and, and Ray developed rheumatism uh, in his left arm in particular. After several moves across Southern California, Los Angeles area, uh, Ray continued to work on the draft, settling in Montrovia outside of L.A. in the San Gabriel foothills. He pressed forward. His side projects with the Slicks and the Pulse bolstered their income, and with that impetus, as well as the constant work he, he put into writing something, yielded dividends now that he was focused on the current manuscript. Weeks later, he delivered said manuscript to Knopf. As the title of his new Philip Marlowe novel, it went through a series of changes to get its definitive title. The Girl of Florians was the first, then the mm. second murderer, which was a reference to Richard III, and because of the usage of the word murder, it mm. struck gold with Knopf. Mm. But in the end, he wished it to be called Farewell, My Lovely, and, ha- and had to convince Knopf to accept it as the title. It has never made clear what the title derived from, uh, though one, has, one who has read the book, or at least has been given a, a synopsis of it, they can understand where it may relate thematically, mm-hmm. but again, it still makes no appearance in the novel whatsoever. Yeah, it is a curious title. It, it really is. Um, just to kind of give a background on that, so 
so he was kind of happy with Second Murderer, with the publishers were as well, but then he had Second Thoughts, um, and it suggested Farewell, My Lovely. Uh, quote, unquote, it took him a lot of effort to convince Blanche Knopf. She howled like hell about the title because it was not at all a mystery title, and she must have worried that the book's audience would be turned off by something so enigmatic. Ray's instincts were right. Farewell, My Lovely is a beautiful title that, unlike The Big mm-hmm. Sleep, does not find its source in the story. In fact, it's not clear who the lovely referred to might actually be, but that is part of its secret. The combination of the spondee of Farewell with the amphibrach My Lovely gives it a a haunting quality quite different from contemporary hard-boiled titles. It points to a kind of romantic weakness at the center that is rather appealing. It is certainly very different to the other titles advertised on the cover of the first edition, like, for example, The Glass Triangle by George Harmon Cox and Journey into Fear by Eric Ambler, they have a hardness to them that pales in comparison with the nuance of Farewell, My Lovely. The title suggests the book is something grander than a mere mystery novel. Mm-hmm. I think it's clever marketing on the author's part here. Uh, however, I know we, we, we talked at great length about the chivalry of the Marlowe character when we studied The Big Sleep. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of... Um, no, who, yeah, who was uh, it? St. Saint, Saint George and the Dragon. St. George and the about. Dragon. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That that sort of stuff. Um, I and I agree that this is probably Chandler trying to make. And not to mention Arthurian myth too, right? Yes. Like like Percival and all that kind of stuff. This is definitely Chandler trying to make it a little bit more uh, romantic, capital R romantic. You're definitely right there. Um, yeah. However, I wonder if it's really as you know thematically linked to the character as he might like to suggest or he might like to yes. think. Because I I don't really see. Or, well, I mean, I'm not giving away my hand here, but I, I, I still don't see Marlowe as a great romantic. I don't get no. that. And I don't he's see a, him he's as a cynic. A, he's yeah. a cynic, but I don't I don't even see that sort of fragility in his character that might hint at the title being about him or an experience he's had, like a, no. a lost opportunity or a yeah, I, I don't I just don't see that. But hey, you know, we haven't gone through all these books yet, but. I think instead it's exactly what you're saying. I think that it's uh, an opportunity. And what Tom Williams saw. is saying. Yeah, Tom Williams, yeah. thank you. It's uh, it's an opportunity Chandler saw to try to sell his book as maybe a bit more serious and outside the periphery of the the pulp or the noir stories, you know? Because yeah, it definitely exactly. isn't a murder title. But, I mean, it's up there with, um, you know, The Sun Also Rises. You know, in terms of titles, I mean, in terms of titles, you've got The Sun Also Rises, Tender is the Night, Farewell, My Lovely. I mean, he, he knows this. Chandler knows what titles are selling. And I think that he's playing off that Hemingway, Lost Generation, Fitzgerald stuff. I, I really do. Oh, I, I think he is. It, it, uh, definitely. You can see those pretensions, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to clarify as well that, you know, even though Blanche Knopf was very unhappy with this, Ray was convinced. Um, and Tom Williams has a quote here from Ray regarding this whole, not just the title of the novel, but also just in terms of what he knew about his audience or what he thought he knew about his audience. I have never had any great respect for the ability of editors, publishers, play and picture producers to guess what the public will like. The record is all against them. I have always tried to put myself in the shoes of the ultimate consumer, the reader, and ignore the middleman. I have always assumed that there exists in the country a fairly large group of intelligent people who like what I like. Hmm. Now, that can come off as arrogant, but to Mm -hmm. me, as someone who has struggled, you know, writing a book and wondering what people will think about it and all this sort of stuff, I think that's a very positive reinforcement of, of saying is that, like, your book is not going to reach out to everyone mm-hmm. it's not going to, you're not some people are not going to like what you write they're not simply going to identify with it something about it might even offend them even though that was not your intention you're you, you know everyone the human race is full of you know 
so many like, you know, walking contradictions that there's no possible way that everyone with all their neuroses is going to like what you write. So I think, you know, making sure that you reach the audience that you want to reach, I think is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. That's my take on it anyways. Right. Okay. So there it is. The book has been out and how's it sell, Josh? Well, so after finagling with some editors, the final draft was published uh, in the United States and Great Britain in October of 1940. Now, the body of Farewell, My Lovely, like its predecessor, The Big Sleep, is an example of Chandler cannibalizing his previous work, mainly those he wrote for the pulp, such as Mandarin's Jade, The Man Who Liked Dogs, and Bay City Blues. And this is when the first interest of Bay City comes in, was in a short story from before, um, this fictional kind of side town to Los Angeles, which is basically Santa Monica Bay community, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm supposing, uh, that he turned into Bay City. Uh, I guess he made it more of a fully registered, like, metropolitan area of its own instead of possibly just a, just part of a greater Los Angeles area. Um, I'm not quite sure on the details of that, though. Like, I'm not sure, like, is Santa Monica part of the Los Angeles area or is it its own separate community? Is it is because it it's a little uh, farther off? Is it, is it considered even part of, like, the main community of, like, uh, San Diego, like, you know, Bel- Alboa County. Like, I'm not quite sure exactly where it falls under. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To raise pleasure, his search for realism was validated by Knopf, who advertised Farewell, My Lovely with the tag, Realism, That is Realism. They printed 7,000 copies of Farewell, but to answer your question, Scott, it sold poorly despite the critical praise. Um, Knopf put the blame on the title, but Chandler adamantly defended it somewhat naively as it was clear that his desired audience was very small or for some reason had not been reached. So uh, that's essentially up until the moment of publishing um, the Farewell, My Lovely, where we leave the life of Raymond Chandler. And if you're wondering, you know, even though he wasn't able to, you know, recruit himself uh, for the war or enlist himself, I should say, um, Raymond Chandler did do his part for the cause in his own way. He wrote a short story. um, One of the short stories that he wrote on the way to getting to the Farewell, My Lovely was No Crime in the Mountains. And essentially, it's a short short story about counterfeiters uh, working on behalf of Nazi Germany and how their ring was busted. It wasn't a Philip Marlowe story. It was just a uh, one-off tale. So he was already pointing out to the fact that there were pro-fascist or even pro-Nazi sympathizers in the United States at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and more money came into his pockets during this time as well. In 1941, a year after publication of Farewell, My Lovely, RKO bought the rights of Farewell. So this would lead eventually to the film adaptation known as Murder, My Sweet uh, by Edward Dimitrik and starring Dick Powell. Mm-hmm. So that, that has its own interesting story about how Dick Powell, you know, was was in and then out and then in for the role as well. It was quite, quite an oh, interesting yeah? story. Yeah. He fought hard to kind of change the persona that uh, Hollywood had given him or perhaps he had given himself through through his roles in the past. And uh, he really wanted to do that role. It's an interesting story. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure it is. Yeah, I watched Murder, My Sweet the other evening. And uh, despite some changes, you know, from the main storyline, um, I was very impressed at its um, not necessarily changes. I, I'm not going to say that there's a lot of condensing of characters into mm-hmm. into role into certain roles they filled in the, in, the, in the novel. And some might disagree with it. And the ending is definitely controversial in comparison to um, the end of the novel um, that, you know, that that we encountered r- reading this. But stylistically it's a very interesting film and was definitely one of the ones that really influenced um the whole noir genre as a whole in terms of what its style would be um you know in addition to you know like what uh 
John Huston did, you know, with the Maltese Falcon. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned that because I recently watched Farewell, My Lovely, the 1975 film starring Robert Mitchell. Oh, yeah. And that was an interesting... I mean, that, that one is all over the place in terms of its plot and what it does with scenes and it puts some at the end and some at the beginning and whatnot. But uh, Sylvia Miles, who plays um, Mrs. Florian uh, in that, was nominated for an Academy Award. Really? Yeah, yeah. Best I, actress I, in a supporting role she was, yeah. Interesting. I had no idea. That's mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah, she plays it quite interestingly. I'll leave it at that. But uh, you may wish to go check out those adaptations if you like the novel. Um, and if you didn't, you know, go check them out anyway and see what you think. Okay. Yeah, so Josh. Sounds, yeah, I'll put that on the list. All right. You've brought us up to that point in uh, Chandler's life. I'm quite eager to get talking about the book. But uh, in contrast to what we did with episode one, we kind of went back to the drawing board and we've done more like we did with the with uh, Sherlock Holmes and our sister podcast over at Bond by Numbers. We've given uh, some some time well you certainly this time you dedicated some time to a written plot summary to help iron out the details so that when we get to our chat we're not sort of all wayward and all over the place right that's right yeah so are you ready to go sir light that up So Philip Marlowe is pursuing a dead-end missing persons case downtown Central Avenue when he first encounters Moose Malloy, a six-foot-five son-of-a-bitch built like a brick shit house who Marlowe observes staring up at the second floor of a building called Florian's. When Marlowe gets too curious, uh, he manhandles Marlowe and brings him up the stairs to what is a colored dive, quote-unquote. After tossing the bouncer and intimidating the bar owner, asking for a girl named Velma Valento, a cute redhead that used to work here when it was a white establishment eight years ago, Malloy tracks down the manager of the premises, a black man, by following the crawling bouncer into an office. Whilst Marlowe and the bartender plan their escape route, Malloy breaks the neck of the owner and leaves Marlowe with the corpse. The local plainclothesman, Nolte, is reluctant to put a a lot of heat on Malloy for killing a black man, leaving Marlowe to do his work for him. Marlowe gets the details on Florian's previous owner and locates his widow, Jesse Florian. She's a drunk old crone who Marlowe manages to pry out a few things with some whiskey. She first palms him off with some pictures of Florian's in his heyday, but Marlowe searches his, her room to find a photo of a redhead, Re Velma. Later that day, a man named Lindsay Marriott calls him and snobbishly summons Marlowe to his house. Marriott is preening and condescending, and Marlowe's retorts turn him to anger until Marlowe calms him down to explain why he requires his services. A lady friend of his was wearing a jade necklace one evening and soon lost said necklace when the car carrying Marriott and said lady friend was hijacked by jewel thieves. Now the thieves are offering a ransom for the necklace and want to meet. Marriott simply requires Marlowe to be his driver and bodyguard that evening. Marlowe accepts. The meet, however, goes pear-shaped quickly. Marlowe pulls Marriott's car over to the beanie place but is soon knocked out by a blackjack. When he regains consciousness, he is assisted by a passerby named Anne Reardon, who with her flashlight in his hand helps him discover Marriott's dead body, his his head beaten to a pulp. He finds on Marriott's person a cigarette case containing three marijuana joints. He does not call the cops right away. Anne wants him to look after his head after being, you know, bludgeoned, but instead drops him off at a roadside bar where he fortifies himself with some liquid courage before turning himself into the police to report the murder. The lead detective, Lieutenant Randall, grills Marlowe, and when he's satisfied he's not a suspect, or at least at the moment, sends him home. Waiting in Marlowe's reception room is Anne Reardon. She reveals she is the daughter of the late great former police chief of Bay City, a fictionalized borough supposedly standing in the community of Santa Monica Bay. We talked about that earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, for his virtue on the job in a corrupt administration, was sent to early retirement. Like her father, she wants to do the right thing. 
Marla learned from Randall that the cigarette case was empty and it's Anne that reveals that she had taken them out of her closer scrutiny. In addition, she ruins Marla's lie that he came to he came to directly to the police as she told Randall that it was her who found Marla at the crime scene. He rebuffs her offer of help and when she relieves in frustration, he examines the joints by, by, by cutting into them, where amongst the paraphernalia he finds within the wrapping a business card belonging to a psychic quack named Jules Amthor. Determined to carry on her father's stalwart legacy, Anne finds the name of Marriott's lady friend. She is Miss Lewin Lockridge Gale, wife to the wealthy radio magnet of the same name, and it is she who had her jade necklace stolen. She arranges a meeting between Mrs. Grail, Marlowe, and herself on the proposition to hire Marlowe to find her missing necklace, regardless of Randall and the LA Police Department undercover operation to bust the jewel thief ring. Marlowe works on a hunch that there has to be some connection between Marriott hiring him the same day he visited Mrs. Florian. He finds it. Marian, Marriott can foreclose Miss Florian's estate at any time as he holds a trustee to her house. He interviews Florian again and finds out that she was a maid in Marriott's household. He feels blackmail might be the main course here. It is also angrily made clear by the soused Mrs. Florian that Velma is dead. Pursuing his next lead, Marlowe rings up Dr. Amthor with the phone number on the business card and makes an appointment. But that appointment will have to wait as it is now time for Marlowe, Anne, and the Grails to meet face to face. Old Man Grail is a pushover for the blonde bombshell, bombshell that is Mrs. Grail. She takes to Marlowe immediately and agreeably hires him to locate her stolen necklace. Anne is angered by their chemistry and leaves. Marlowe and Mrs. Grail alone on the couch in the drawing room put their charms to work on each other until their snogging is interrupted by Mr. Grail, who doesn't really seem to mind. <laughs> Awkward. From the detail, yeah, very. From the details we learn from Anne, Mrs. Grail was a radio singer for his station and Marriott himself was an announcer. She married Grail in Europe under another name. Marlowe is still put off by placing horns on Mr. Grail and ceases the canoodling, which angers Mrs. Grail, but not enough to continue with his services or pursue him romantically. They agree to meet at that night at a nearby restaurant owned by Laird Brunette, an influential gangster in Los Angeles and Bay City. Back at his office, Marlowe finds a large Aboriginal man waiting for him. He is driven to Amthor's office, where Amthor starts to examine him in what will become an interrogation. Hearing all he needs to hear about what Marlowe knows about his racket, he orders his henchmen to subdue him so he can smash Marlowe in the face with his gun. Anthor delivers Marlowe into the hands of two Bay City plainsclothesmen who drive him outside the city and throw him out of the vehicle and promptly blackjack him. Again. <laughs> Marlowe soon finds himself in what is essentially a room fit for a sanitarium, all doped up and delusional. He has visions and hallucinations for quite some time, but manages to fight it long enough to break off one of the bed springs and use it to bludgeon the guard when his vocal distraction of fire, he could see smoke after all, tricks the guard to his trap. <laughs> Marlowe, barely lucid, makes his way to the hall where he is made curious to the sound coming from a near-closed door. Peeking in, he sees none other than Moose Malloy, the man who killed the owner of the Florians, resting on the bed. This man who just got out of prison for a bank frame-up job and the man who pers pursuing a dead woman from the past. Marlowe processes this and heads into the office of the large house he is being held captive in. He locates his hat and gun. A Dr. Sonberg is the chief resident of the facility, and despite the, the gun in Marlowe's hand, he is peculiarly unfazed by the whole situation, urging Marlowe he is not well, even calling Marlowe's bluff that he will shoot him. Marlowe manages to get the keys and makes his way into the rainy night. He is in Bay City, and there is only one place where he can run to. Anne Rudin, surprised to see him at the door of her house nearby, lets him in. He, steps at her, he stays at her place for a while. Uh, she offers him to stay the night, but he is adamant to get back to his apartment, and furious, she drives him back into the middle of the night. In the morning, Marlowe gets Lieutenant, on the, gets Lieutenant Randall on the horn, and they discuss the details of the case at Marlowe's apartment, the case that Randall ordered Marlowe to stay away from. Marlowe tells Randall everything that occurred the previous evening, including the connection with Mrs. Florian. They visit Mrs. Florian's nosy neighbor, who Randall catches in a lie that determined that Mrs. Florian did not pick up a package delivered to her because the mail, uh, mailman had just arrived on the block. 
Entering Mrs. Florian's house, they find it all but empty, but that the all but being her corpse, strangled with her head crushed against the bedpost. It appears Moose Malloy found her and did not like what she had to say. Determined to find Malloy as well as the mystery surrounding Amthor, Marlowe visits the corrupt police chief of Bay City, John Wax, who tells Marlowe where to go until he plays the Miss Grail card. Mm -hmm. As soon as Wax hears the name of Marlowe's clientele, he clams up, his clam up comes to an end, and out come the shot glasses. Marlowe has Wax call in one of his two detectives, Galbraith, who is the man Marlowe referred to astutely as Hemingway during his car ride to Dr. Sonberg's. Wax orders Galbraith to take Marlowe wherever he wants to go. In the preceding conveyance, Marlowe learns Galbraith may be corrupt, but in a way that points to the terrible state of law enforcement in the country at the time. Underpaid for a high-risk job, Galbraith admits to his misdeeds, but they don't compare to his partner Blaine, or Wax. From Galbraith, Marlowe learns that if Sonberg's place was busted, that the only other place Malloy could hide out would be on the Montecito, Laird Brunette's gambling ship anchored out in Santa Monica Bay. Marlowe, with the help of an ex-cop named Red Norgard, is smuggled aboard the Montecito. Using a ventilation shaft to reach the top deck, Marlowe is finally captured by Brunette's thugs. In Brunette's star stateroom, he is interrogated at gunpoint by Brunette, but softly at this point, because they want to determine how he got aboard the Montecito without them knowing. Marlowe offers the details of how he breached the ship in exchange for Brunette to send a message out to Moose Malloy so that Marlowe can reach out to him. Brunette maintains that Malloy is not aboard this ship, but takes Marlowe's offer. The henchmen confirm how the details of how the breach was executed, and Brunette promises to send the message, letting Marlowe a mere nuisance, not worth disappearing at the moment, go. Marlowe now plans his final hunch. He returns to his apartment and calls Mrs. Grail on the pretense of their planned date. But an unexpected, okay, somewhat expected, guest arrives first, Moose Malloy. Marlowe admonishes him for not knowing his own strength when he was shaking Mrs. Florian in her pursuit of Velma, thus killing her. Moose is remorseful, but the buzzer rings. Enter Mrs. Grail. Marlowe orders Moose to hide in the apartment beforehand, therefore making him privy to the conversation. Marlowe straight up confronts her that she killed Marriott. Mrs. Florian had recognized Mrs. Grail when she heard it on the radio and threatened to reveal her secret. Which secret? Well, to keep her in line, Mrs. Grail had Marriott place the trust deed on Mrs. Florian's house. When Mrs. Florian called, Marriott, after her first visit with Marlowe, and Marriott reported this to Mrs. Grail, the latter told Marriott to hire Marlowe for the bodyguard job and then kill him. Or so that was the plan as Marriott sought. Instead, Mrs. Grail blackjacked Marlowe and bludgeoned Marriott to death. He knew too much about her secret past, that she had been a showgirl named Velma Valento, and Marriott could easily slip up and expose her. Mrs. Grail's immediate response was to remove a pistol from her handbag. Having heard this revelation, Moose Malloy emerges from hiding and confronts her gun in hand. He understood now that she was the one who turned him in on the bank heist seven years ago. Not budging an inch as Moose approached her, she shoots Malloy five times in the, in the torso before Marlowe can stop it. She runs out and Malloy dies of his wounds that night. Ultimately, Velma is tracked down to Baltimore by another detective. She was hiding out as a lounge singer until said detective confronts her with the truth of her identity in the dressing room. Velma kills the detective and soon finds herself in a firefight where she decides to shoot herself in the head. A second, happier ending is delivered when Sonberg, Amthor, as well as the corrupt cops Wax and Stain are indicted, and Marlowe finds himself at Anne's door, where she promptly lets him in. Mm-hmm. Nice work. Yeah, that's that's a lot to take in. Uh, just like The Big Sleep has a lot to take in, but it's uh, it's our job now to use our pipes and go through it and see just how successful a story this is. So well done there on your plot summary, my friend. Thank you. Thank you.
All right, BFG, let's let's do it. Let's lay our pipes and chew down on the first uh, letter of our acronym, the P for principles. How did we like the principal character, our protagonist here of Philip Marlowe? What do you think? Shoot from the hip. How does he work Shoot in Farewell? Uh, I enjoyed Marlowe immensely in uh, in this in this book, uh, even more in, 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 in even more than the uh, first book. Like I found that you know he was Chandler was trying to express a character that was very taciturn and very sardonic, as, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and but he came off, I guess, just reacting to everything that was going on. Like you know, it, whereas in this story, I found that he there was a little emotional investment on his part. Like and it showed also his dogged determination. That was probably you know the result of him being a former cop as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I I just saw a lot of moments of of his character appear in Farewell, My Lovely, as opposed to The Big Sleep. Um, and mostly too, like if you see the film version of The Big Sleep, it's mostly a romance between Bogey and Bacall. Yes. So yeah. you don't really see that in the novel, The Big Sleep, at all. You just mm-hmm. kind of see a possible love interest for Marlo, but that's about it really when it comes to her. So, but in this thing, I not only was it you know like I liked the relationship between him and Anne. Um, Anne deserved a far better guy in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, I can understand why Marlo likes her. I liked his relationship with Mrs. Florian, even though he was kind of like disgusted by her. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He also had sympathy for her at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, he also, and his sympathy for Moose as well. Like he understood his situation, and 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 uh, he wanted to find, you know, he wanted to find out, you know, you know how he could help him in some way. So there was that connection. There was also just a connection with him, like with, with with like guys like Randall, you know, like even though Randall pissed him off, you could tell that he liked Randall. Yes, you could tell yeah. even that he sympathized with Galbraith, uh, Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could tell mm-hmm. that he even, um, and of course, especially uh, the kind of like that once in a moment kind of pairing between him and Red Norgard, uh, this, you know, this ex-cop who isn't is in like in Galbraith's situation but hasn't crossed that line yet you know what i mean yeah and there was some sympathy there as well and also understanding and and even some uh, tom williams even mentions that some people even saw a little of latent homosexuality uh in that as well uh, which, which is really interesting i never really thought of it that way but um yeah i, I like to have marlon interacted with everyone in this world like from the top from the you know from the lower classes um didn't really appreciate how he, he acted you know with the you know, in the colored bar and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that was definitely unfortunate. Um, but sign of the time, I suppose. Well, I think um, I think his behavior in the bar was okay. Um, it was okay. But I yes. mean, yeah. But the way, but I think as we got like his, uh, of course, we, we get, you know, his first po- person point of view in, in the authorial yeah, it's, voice, it's right? The, it's the language and the, the, the sort of slang the and the cultural norm. The cultural norm. And I, I mean... I don't know if he was really racist himself. I just think he saw them as different from other people. And that's kind of the way that Chandler writes them. Like, it's almost like they're talking, he's talking about like an alien race, almost like a whole different type of culture. Um, yes and no. It, it, I, I, I mean, it, it's, it's, it is terribly racist, but at the same time. The book is um, racist, dude. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I agree yes. with you, but I don't, I think that there is a nod here in the other direction on the part of Chandler, because you do often get that sort of, and and it's hidden, it's hidden within the character's sardonic humor. It, it, it's hidden within the character's sarcasm as well, particularly when he's talking to Nulty at the start, you know, he keeps reminding him that, well, we don't really care about, about a black person's murder. Exactly. Do we? Like, like there is that sense of you're not a goddamn cop. Like you're not really thinking of all people for all some. You're thinking yes. about what you know the cultural norm. And and so I, I'm not saying, by the way, that I think Chandler was really pushing the envelope for a new America. What I am trying to say though is that I think there's room to interpret his character as a little bit more sympathetic, a little bit more compassionate than yes. than I mean than, than we he are. Was stuck, 
stuck with the colloquialisms of the time, yeah, right? Exactly. So I understand that, yeah, and yeah. and and he and they are different to him, and that and uh-huh. and he honestly admits that in, a, in a, you know in in his first voice in his first first person voice, yes, like that's right. He admits that, but mm-hmm. you don't really see him in any way, kind of like. Uh, now, I mean, he does use the word it to describe, which is kind of mm-hmm, really mm-hmm. disturbing. And maybe mm-hmm. that's Chandler trying to connect with his readers as a whole. Like maybe that's um, that's what that was the attempt as. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was something in the editing room. We, we we don't know. Williams agrees that regardless, I mean, it's indefensible. Some of the stuff is mentioned. And don't get me started, you know, on the whole thing with the uh, Indian bodyguard. You know, oh, yeah, that whole... for sure. Yeah, we, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. But I mean, this is a big part of, of Philip Marlowe's character. He is living yes. in this world. He's breathing in this world and he plays the cards he needs needs to in order to survive in this world. I, I yeah, mean, I, I might just exactly. remind you that um, that when he behaves and says what he says when he's at the bar at Florian's at the very beginning, um, I mean, Moose Malloy has brought him up there by gunpoint. You know, he's basically found himself in this situation where he's got <laughs> to agree. <laughs> and he's Yeah, exactly. He has to agree and act uh, according to Moose. He's got to follow his lead at least until he's out of there. And so if yeah. there's one thing that this book and certainly The Big Sleep also promoted is the idea of Marlowe being able to survive by clawing at his fingernails and he's doing yeah. what he needs to do here he's playing the part that Malloy he's a survivalist he's doing he's yes. doing what he needs to do so I don't think that he's uh, he, he is a forward-thinking progressive character but I do think there's a little more room for interpretation in this book um, yes. because he he, <clears throat> he uses the the slang the vernacular the offensive language in, in, in describing people like um, in describing African Americans, yes, he does, and there's no getting away from that. But um, how much of that you want to equate to the author, I'm not so so sure. And and how much of it is connected to a sense yeah. of evil or rot or corruption within Marlowe himself, I don't know. It's it's tough to say, and I don't I don't know that I'm best placed to try to make that judgment. Yeah, but, I agree with you uh, fully. <clears throat> But in, in speaking about his character, though, um, I th- you know, one of the things that The Big Sleep promoted and this book really picks up on is the idea of Marlowe just being a snoop and him being curious. Like on yes. at the at the end of He's the detect- he feels like a detective in this in this in this story, like he wants to he has his own reasons why he wants to solve a particular case. I mean, not uh-huh. just for money, but yeah, it still shows his curiosity as someone who did work as a plainclothesman before. Mm-hmm. And now that he's just like a, a private dick. He can have a bit more freedom in, in that aspect because he doesn't have, you know, the bearing of a police officer where he has to follow certain rules. He can kind of bend them a little bit to get what he needs and what he wants. Um, and this also allows him, I think, to function in that survivalist way that we're talking about. That's right. After Malloy opens up violently at Florian's, um, we get this line at the end of chapter three. Uh, I ate lunch at a drugstore, bought a pint of bourbon and drove eastward to Central Avenue and north on Central again. The hunch I had was as vague as the heat waves that danced above the sidewalk. Nothing made it my business except my curiosity. Yeah, but, yes, I was, going, I was yeah. thinking of that line exactly. Nothing mm-hmm. made it my business except my curiosity. There was a line identical to that almost in The Big Sleep. And we get a couple of chapters in this book that end with the same sort of idea. Like, well, I know Randall's told me to back off, but now I've got a reason to keep looking, you know? And and that's sort of, that's sort of bloodhoundy. I'm just in this to see what's, you know, and, and he, in that way, he kind of connects with Miss Robinson, the neighbor, the Snoopy neighbor who just keeps kind of looking at, oh, yeah. at, at what's going on. There, there's a kindredness the there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's a couple of other moments here about, um, or I should say, uh, upon which I'd like to just rest with Marlowe's character. Um, later on, uh, chapter four, chapter five, someplace, uh, where are we here? Let me tell you what chapter we're in. Chapter five, yep. Yeah, this, this is when... 
Um, we, I think when he gets to Jesse Florian's house, you intimated that he's quite interested and compassionate towards her up to a point. But up at the same point. time, we also get this limit to his character. And we didn't see a lot of this in The Big Sleep, but I think Chandler's maybe stretching his legs with the character now. A lovely old woman. I liked being with her. I liked getting her drunk for my own sordid purposes. I was a swell guy. I enjoyed being me. You find almost anything under your hand in my business. But I was beginning to be a little sick at my stomach. So there's this idea here, isn't there, that he's um, he, he does have a limit to what he's comfortable with. And he uses yeah. the sarcasm here, the character voice, to kind of hide that disgust. Yeah, he's like lubricating her, you know, to get information and he kind of and he feels bad. He feels about bad it. about it. Yeah, yeah. But he's doing what he has to do, knowing that this is going to work because she does swoon when he brings out that bourbon. Exactly. So the thing is, is that I think he's he's conflicted here. I think at the same time, while he feels bad about what he's doing, he also feels like no one pays attention to this old lady. She's yeah, probably very totally. lonely. Yeah, yeah. And he feels like you know, he feels good about himself. You know, like uh, he feels, you know, that he's, you know, making her happy or she or mm -hmm. she's having fun, despite, you know, that fact that he's given her alcohol. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, he's given her another reason, you know, to get up in the morning. And I, mean, uh, I think I, I think he kind of he kind of that's kind of his chivalrous nature uh, yeah, in, yeah. In, in, in his way. Absolutely. What did you make, Josh, of um, the start of chapter seven? I don't know if you got your book handy. You want to flip to mm -hmm. it to me? I really like this. I think it's good character the, uh, writing. The uh, Rembrandt. Yeah, mentioned? they had Rembrandt on the calendar that year. Well, because last year, because last book, it was like the, the it was the Danone quintuplets, if I wasn't mistaken. Mm hmm. The Dion not, not twin. Dion, quintuplets. yeah. Danone is a yogurt. Yeah, the Dion <laughs> quintuplets. quintuplets. But I like how this feeds I mean, into. They, they come in the series of five. Don't know. They're four packs, aren't they? The Danone yogurt. Four usually. packs. Yeah, they're four packs. Yeah. Right? No, six packs usually. I think they're like little six packs. Of, yeah. Anyway, let me, anyway. <laughs> let me read this bit for you, okay? Because I, I, I do like I do like how we get in this little passage of bored, a very pensive kind of character writing. And I like the connection here. I think this is quite good. M maybe you could say it's ham-fisted even. I don't know. I'll let, I'll let you decide. They had Rembrandt on the calendar that year, a rather smeary self-portrait due to imperfectly registered color plates. It showed him holding a smeared palette with a dirty thumb and wearing a tam-o-shanter, which wasn't any too clean either. His other hand held a brush poised in the air as if he might be going to do a little work after a while if somebody made a down payment. His face was agey, saggy, full of the disgust of life and the thickening effects of liquor. But it had a hard cheerfulness that I liked, and the eyes were as bright as drops of dew. I was looking at him across my office desk at about 4.30 when the phone rang, and I heard a cool, supercilious voice that sounded as if it thought it was pretty good. It said dryly after I had answered, you are Philip Marlowe, a private detective. Uh, so is there a connection being made there? I, maybe it is ham-fisted. You know, Chandler's wanting us to see the the skill Marlo beneath the tiredness. Rem Rembrandt and Marlowe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the artist beneath the fatigue. You know, I think there's something something there being done. Could be no. self-autobiographical, right? He's under a lot of stress, worrying about the World War Two, you know, and yeah, he was uh, maybe, yeah, tr maybe. trying to write so many books at the same time. Well, always he's also moving, growing in alcoholism. Like yeah, well, his alcoholism is, isn't it's not as prevalent at that, at that time, but um, it was 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 before. Uh, I'm not sure whether he gets into it deeper, but I guess we'll get into that down the road. Um, but I just want to make an opinion that you know he was writing multiple drafts. They were also moving every every, every which way in that, never settling mm -hmm. in a place, always moving around. Uh, it could be just a lot of stress in his life, and he was working hard. And the effects of, of his alcoholic experience he had previously definitely uh, probably uh, weighed on him. Um, mm -hmm. And 
I, I think it's fair to say that this could be some kind of meta comment for sure. Can I ask you this then? Uh, I guess jumping back, if I can, to the Hotel Sanssouci, where he meets up with the uh, the black man working at the desk, who's described as like this, you know, this kind of tired yeah. turtle who barely opens his eyes. Like in terms yeah. of Marlowe's character, I wonder what you think of this because to me, you know, um, the, the 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 counter guy, the, the attendant there working at the hotel, essentially just tells Marlowe to use the city directory to find the information he's looking for. Yeah, and Marlowe Marlo wonders kind of what he'd been using for brains his whole life. And, if, and he, I think that's one of the lines <laughs> that he uses. No, I think I it is. But I like that little moment for um, personally. And I think that it, it accomplishes quite a bit narratively because it establishes Marlowe as a human right who's who's yeah. faulted he's you know he's not perfect and it also adds um in in the spirit of you know writing against the grain i think it adds that realism to this story that rides against or challenges the terrain of the all-knowing all-seeing detective like this is yes. real real life this, is, this right? isn't like the art of deduction you know exactly like, yeah this, this is real life where information sometimes ain't that tough to get if you just think about it right yeah you don't need to you, yeah you don't need to solve one mystery yeah. within another mystery you know to get to the next part of the case uh-huh. i also want to point out that scene if you look at it compared to the scene of florian's the, there isn't there isn't a lot of uh, racist dialogue in that particular or, or no, that's not at all. No, the section no. like he actually seems to respect the guy at the desk and stuff. And yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and like he even goes behind behind the uh, counter with him and everything like that. So, mm-hmm. and it seems like the other man took a hint to him in it as well. So I just seemed like it was just some two people that you know respected each other from across the uh, the space of the of the of the of the, of the, of the concierge desk, I guess you could call it, and you know, they, um, they connected in some way just for that little scene. But mm-hmm. I think it's an argument to say that, you know, Chandler was trying to do some sort of, I think, stylistic writing in that sequence of Florian's mm. as opposed to what he's doing here. Uh, and also I think it reinforces the fact that Marlowe did care about, you know, Montgomery, even though he was a crook, he mm-hmm. was a black man who wasn't being, his death was not being investigated by the, that's right. Yeah. By the by, um, Nolte. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we can talk about that a little more when we get when we get to the investigation. But just speaking about this character point a little more, I find it interesting. And maybe now's a good time to talk about Hemingway, not not just Galbraith, um, but <laughs> also why it is that Marlowe chooses to make. Sorry, why it is that Chandler chooses to make Marlowe critical of Hemingway so kind of blatantly? Because, you know, later on uh, when he gets picked up. Um, from Amthor's and brought to the doctor's place. Uh, Hemingway has this, or detective or Captain Galbraith, isn't it? Sergeant Galbraith has has yeah. this chat with him. Um, the big man said, now that we're all between pals and no ladies present, we don't really give so much time to why you went back up there. But this Hemingway stuff is really what has me down. A gag, I said, an old, old gag. Who is this Hemingway person at all? A guy that keeps saying the same thing over and over <laughs> until you begin to believe it must be good. That must take a hell of a long time, the big man said. For a private dick, you certainly have a wandering kind of mind. Are you still wearing your own teeth? Yeah, with a few plugs in them. Well, you certainly have been lucky, Pally. So, I can see Marlowe... I mean, thinking... I mean, understanding, first of all, that Hemingway is the type of writer he is, you know, who who is very declarative and, and very repetitive in some sequence and some style and fashion. I can see Marlowe not liking Hemingway because Hemingway takes away all the adjectives, all the flourishes. He takes yes. away all the similes and metaphors and, yes. and, the, and the, you know, the hammy sort of one-liners. I can see Marlowe not liking him. But I found it stylistically interesting that Chandler 
uses Marlowe as a mouthpiece to criticize Hemingway because there is a sentence in this book I've got to read out to you because it is Hemingway and it's only 10 pages after this moment. It's Hemingway just on a dish, okay? Listen to this. What, what, what page? This is page, well, on my page is 194. It won't be the same as yours, but we're, ta- we're, we're towards the uh, beginning of chapter 28, okay? There's a moment here at the beginning of chapter 28 that is standout, just reeks of Hemingway to me as I read it. This is when Anne Reardon has collected him, or rather he shows up at Anne's apartment and she's After giving him... After escaping yeah, from Sondberg, yeah, yeah. That's right. And she gives him drink, okay? She came back with the glass and her fingers cold from holding the cold glass touched mine. And I held them for a moment and then let them go slowly as you let go of a dream when you wake with the sun in your face and you have been in an enchanted valley. Oh, yeah. That's like a, that, that's, that's a Hemingway great. structure. And that is... I wonder if that's Chandler deliberately plugging little sentences like that in here to sort of say, I can do this too. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this this growing American rewrite of literature. I can do this too, but I'm not yeah. going to. And I can I can diminish it by planting it into a, a pulpy crime novel. Like, I wonder what's going on there with the whole Hemingway reference and then the Im- imitation style. I, I, what do you think? Like, or do you think anything of it? Do you think more is it's like a nod? It's like the whole thing about the about, you know, Galbraith Hemingway comment about it gets better as you read it mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. or how, or how that's how I'm paraphrasing anyways. Um, do you not think that maybe it's just like a it's just like a subtle it's like it's it's like a, just a nice little dig at Hemingway, not meant to be kind of like critical of him. And maybe. Sure. OK. I, I, yeah, I, maybe. I, I find, too, like um, in his prose. Chandler reminds me of Hemingway in in in, in moments like that. Mm-hmm. He just has a little more detail than Hemingway, and how he writes scene by scene, you know, and lets the story flow in his own way. I think he organically, though the Hemingway style that he kind of espouses sometimes is an organic thing that comes to him. I think mm-hmm. through inspiration, and I can think I can see Hemingway being that inspiration. But I also like how he puts in the realism mm-hmm. um, in a different way than Hemingway does. Chandler. He puts in like little details like, you know, the linoleum cracks or, or, or the mold on something or just little details just to give you kind of like a cinematic picture. Yeah. Like with Hemingway, you see that you follow the flow and you kind of get by the repetition that he uses and everything. You're feeling the moment that, that he's in. Whereas Chandler, I think, has a more cinematic aspect to him where he just kind of delivers you like – scenes or or little tableaus i guess you could say of of what he wants to show little snapshots i guess you Mm. could say okay cool yeah either way it's curious isn't it i mean i think we both acknowledge that there's a curiosity tier to this stuff um you know what buddy i I really like philip marlowe in this story i think this this marlowe for me personally as a reader and i did get him in the big sleep but i think is an improvement on what we got with the big sleep in, in terms of his character he's more adventurous he's more thrilling to follow i find he's yes uh he's he's more tired and fatigued maybe but i also like the way that this marlowe works with other people he's not so much a lone wolf in this story and i think that works well for the world that chandler creates i i really liked the adventure side to him i got to see a little bit more secret agent here than just cop yeah. planes a, plane, a secret detective. agent who gets blackjacked a lot but yes uh, yeah, absolutely yeah. <laughs> but but you know not for the first time this afternoon i'm going to say a thing or two about james bond because to me this is like i'm reading a bond novel in some places mm. and i really liked i liked him in here i mean it, 
I still think there are, there are facets to his character, particularly the sort of uh, um, the, the the pretending he he makes when he's dealing with some women, you know, and the sort of I can't talk to you or show you how I really feel about you. I can kiss you and I can talk about your legs, but I can't really be tender. There's no tenderness to him yet, you know, in mm. terms of how he deals with women. And I, I get that that's part of the shtick, but I would like to see a little bit more of that when the women around him are offering it, you know, uh, yeah. at least Anne. But I, I went four overall for for him I, I did enjoy him and I think that he's really fun to be around in this story um, not my perfect protagonist but he's good in this book and he's fun to follow I'm not bored watching him and he says a lot of great stuff he's got a lot of great quips you know the the Marlowe or the, the Marlowisms are, are all over this book there are so many wonderful you know Marlowisms here uh, I mean just from from the very first page you know the things he says are engaging and that I know this t- comes to style as well well when he first of, descri- but... like yeah like when he first um just like how he just notices people right away and how they grab his attention and this kind of leads him on his own adventure like he sees something that's attractive to him in a very now by attractive I mean in a broad sense something that you know that he's that that kind of like a magnet he's brought towards and this leads him down a whole different um trail um and adventure as you said yeah just to describe here you know in in the first chapter of him describing moose it was a warm day almost the end of march and i stood outside the barbershop looking up at the jutting neon sign of the second floor dine and dice emporium called florian's a man was looking up at the sign too he was looking up at the dusty windows with a sort of ecstatic fixity of expression like a hunky immigrant catching his first sight of the statue of liberty he was a big man, but not more than six feet, five inches tall and not wider than a beer truck. He was about <laughs> 10 feet away from me. His arms hung loose at his sides and a forgotten cigar smoked behind his enormous fingers. Slim, quiet Negroes passed up and down the street and stared at him with darting side glances. He was worth looking at. He wore a shaggy Borsalino hat, a rough gray sports coat with a white golf balls on it for buttons, a brown shirt, a yellow tie, pleated gray final slacks and alligator shoes with white explosions on the toes. From his outer breast pot pocket as cascaded a show handkerchief of the same brilliant yellow as his tie they were a couple of colored leathers tucked into a band of his hat but he didn't really need them even on central avenue not the quietest dressed street in the world he looked about as inconspicuous as a tarantula on a slice of angel food mm-hmm. now that whole sequence that whole paragraph is fantastic um yeah i mean what you're citing there a lot of that is is chandler's descriptive qualities i mean it's yes. it's, it's the attention with yes. which he's given. less a character it's point very, it's very anti. It's Chandler's descriptive qualities, yes, but it's also. But we're also talking about this is the voice of Marlowe that mm-hmm. we're reading, and this is how he's describing. This is him noticing all the different details, on, for example, Moose Malloy. He sees this mm-hmm. big tall guy. He immediately wants to know more about this guy. That's why he gets curious and ends up, you know, up in the second floor of Florian's afterwards. Yeah. yeah. So he's noticing all these details. Here you have here is him in a very kind of Sherlock Holmes way. Doing all the noticing all the things that Sherlock Holmes would notice: the shaggy Borsalina hat, the white golf balls on it for buttons, the brown shirt, the yellow tie. He's noticing all these different details that that make him work excellently as a detective. Yeah. So yes, it is a descriptive of Chandler's writing style. Absolutely, I think it's also though a perspective of mm. how Philip Marlowe sees the world and how he drinks it all in. Uh-huh. And I think that's I think that's a refen- that, that that's a great reference. Yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't trying to brush you aside, but I hadn't no. really, I hadn't thought about it as as what you're saying. Like, it's actually, it's actually like investigation itself. Like his his yes. his his objectivity is investigating. Yeah, yes. I, I was, I suppose, thinking more along the lines of the the character's sort of laconic humor. You know, that sort of dark yes. nihilistic stuff. Like when he's going up to. Uh, um, He'd be a good Spartan, absolutely. <laughs> when he when he's walking up to uh, to meet. 
Flurry. Um, no, not Florian. Oh, uh, Marriott? Marriott, yeah. He goes up to meet Marriott. I walked back through the arch and started up the steps. It was a nice walk if you liked grunting. There were 280 steps up to Cabrillo Street. They were drifted over with windblown sand, and the handrail was as cold and as wet as a toad's belly. And then a little bit further on, we get this great line. Uh, there are some laugh-out lines in this book, and I'm looking forward to more of them as we go through this series. She reached into her bag and slid a photograph across the desk, a five-by-three glazed still. It was a blonde, a blonde to make a bishop kick a hole in a stained glass window. <laughs> and then we get another one when he's talking about um, second planting, the Native American. I played with my pipe, stared at the Indian and tried to ride him with my stare. He looked as nervous as a brick wall. <laughs> I mean, the Marlowisms are phenomenal. This is one of the most I, enjoyable parts of the story, you know. Yeah. But but they are littered. They're littered within some really eloquent descriptions as well. And that makes make that makes Chandler's writing style really I won't say inimitable, but very unique and really engaging. Yes. Really engaging. Yes. So you, I mean, we can say that, yes, he might have that kind of muscular style. And, and sometimes it is like like Hemingway has, but he's more muscular in his description. He's more in his detail. That's how Chandler, I think, is different from Hemingway. And I want to point out that, you know, this is like like Raymond Chandler and his novels uh, is, you know, is considered, you know, like the um, I guess it's the epitome of the of, of modern detective fiction is the works of Raymond Chandler. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing about it is that he captures the American spirit of the time of Los Angeles, that whole society so eloquently. Um, but it's not done by an American. It's, it's because the prose that we're getting is done by someone who was educated in England, who had access to English literature more than, say, an American would, and access to that culture. So what's really interesting is that you have Philip Marlowe, an American character, but his authorial voice uh, or the point of view perspective that we're given in that authorial voice is that of a British man, expa expatriate, um, in its own way. So it's um, so it's a really interesting I, I think style that could only happen, you know, because of Raymond Chandler's background is what I'm trying to say. Right. So you think that, that there's a blended uh, approach here that he there's, might not be aware of, but it's not purely an American voice that's coming through. I feel that. I, okay. I feel that. It's because, right. again, even Marlowe in his own way, he's kind of the outsider looking at everybody because he's the one he's not he's not part of the law. He's not he's not a criminal. He is simply in between. And that's mm -hmm. kind of like what I think R Raymond Chandler is in this in this, I guess, in this comparison is you have someone who's not quite American and not British. He's someone in between. And I think that's where the connection between the author and the character of Marlowe, that's their nexus. And I think that's how the ideas that Chandler has, they come out through Marlowe, his mouthpiece. That's interesting. And I guess as we go through the series, we can we can revisit that idea. But um, I'm just thinking from a starting point that the, the, you know, fans of Steinbeck might take you up on that um, and say, you know, there's a very typically American and California voice that can be found that isn't too dissimilar. So I, I think it's interesting what, you, what you're saying here. But I, I would like to bring you on, Josh, if oh, I could, yeah. just in the spirit I of... Yeah, I wasn't trying to go at Steinbeck. I'm just trying to say that in my in how I'm viewing uh, Raymond Chandler's style, I'm seeing someone who's kind of like in between worlds, who's describing things and using Marlowe as, I guess, the the, the prism for that in his story. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it just feels that that way to me about the perspective that Marlowe has and the perspective that Raymond Chandler has. Is okay. all I'm trying to say. Yeah. No, I got, I got you. I got you, and I just think it's maybe worth retesting what you're saying as we as we continue yeah. through. To, to, but, to, to end the principal section, though, I gave um, I gave our principal Marlowe. I gave him a four. Okay, so we're both a four on the principal. Um, it's 
Yeah, it's time now to talk about the investigation. I could give him the argument to a four and a half just because of how much I think he improved from the last story. Yeah, he's good. Because I really enjoyed Merle with this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's go to investigation. Now, investigation also involves how the story is written, not just what happens. As you've yes. already said, and I don't think we need to go through all those details again because you've nicely laid them out for us. This is a reworking, like The Big Sleep, of different short stories, features of different short stories. What I will say for my part here is that unlike The Big Sleep, and this is my opinion, unlike The Big Sleep, where I felt we were very clearly moving from this story to that story you know you could almost hear the vault door shutting and the other one opening like here I feel like the stitching here between the narratives is better um, I yes. feel as though it's a bit tighter this is how I feel and I don't I don't want to influence any any decision that you might have but just to lay it out on the line I like this story as written the plot of this story the way it moves I like this better than the big sleep and mm -hmm. I find it more engaging more fun to follow part of that has to do with a caution to the wind adventure that you get at some in some parts of this where i never really felt that marlo was on an adventure and i like that sort of escapism there's a bit more escapism here even though it's grounded in a realistic and gritty world i find that marlo's adventure and his hunger and appetite is a little bit more active here than mm -hmm. it was in the last one we go we do more sort of interesting things or perhaps he's given more interesting things to see and do like yes you know like what's his name up there uh, amthor just kind of hovering like a villain like a bond villain over yeah. los angeles waiting to con all these ladies out of their money and in his men Ken out of their Adams lives. design kind of uh, exactly yeah headquarters and, yeah <laughs> and I mean but but I think it it really does warrant uh, having a good look at that I would like to I mean if you'll indulge me for just a moment I'd like to have a read of Amthor's descriptive and this isn't by the way the be, only one be, be, before you get to Amthor though um, Jesse uh, Florian no uh, just so it's before we get to the Amthor sequence. Uh, I want to point out this great sequence um, that I think it really captures the style uh, that we were talking about. This is uh, when the Indian is driving um, the Aboriginal person, I, I prefer to say. Second planting. Yeah, yeah, second planting is driving uh, Marlowe to Amthor's. We went west, dropped over to Sunset, and slid fast and noiseless along that. The Indian sat motionless beside the chauffeur. An occasional whiff of his personality drifted back to me. The driver looked as if he was half asleep, but he passed the fast boys in the convertible sedans as though they were being towed. They turned on all the green lights for him. Some drivers are like that. He never missed one. We curved through the bright mile or two of the strip, past the antique shops with famous screen names on them, past the windows full of point lace and ancient pewter, past the gleaming new nightclubs with famous chefs and equally famous gambling rooms run by polished graduates of the Purple Gang, past the Georgian colonial vogue, now old hat, past the handsome modernistic buildings in which the Hollywood flesh peddlers never stopped talking money, past the drive and lunch with, with somehow didn't belong, even though the girls wore white silk blouses and drum majorette shakos and nothing below the hips but glazed kid hessian boots, past all this and down a wide smooth curve to the bridal path of Beverly Hills and lights to the south, all colors of the spectrum and crystal clear in an evening without fog, past the shadowed mansions up on the hills to the north, past Beverly Hills altogether and up into the twisting foothill boulevard in the sudden cool dusk and the drift of wind from the sea that itself just to me just like when he, as he gets to stillwood heights you know where amthor is located it just that just, that just took you through like los angeles you know like you can just feel the energy of the city and just feel like the mood that he's trying to set about los angeles as a whole like the dark you think of the foothills of california you know with their big mansions but to him you know it's shadowed mansions up on the hills to the north 
past Beverly Hills. Like you get to kind of feel, you know, just the corruption and the and the pall of of corruption just like hovering over the city itself, you know? Like I don't know, it just he just sets the set the stage so well for his story. And I yeah, think that's, does, a, that's yeah. a perfect example of that in his style. Mm -hmm. So so now we get to Stillwood Heights and uh we're talking about Jules Amthor, our psychic villain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Amthor, of course, is a con man. We learned that. Um, but he's a con man with pretty good connections. And he's able to use the Bay City Police to get rid of anybody who's too hot on his trail or who, like Marlowe, uh, comes close to implicating him in a murder. And the description of his of his estate is remarkably like that of a, a real comic book villain and or a bond villain you know and i i think that we'd be remiss if we didn't mention something of that because amthor is one of the reasons why i love the adventurous more sort of um uh monochromatic good versus bad feeling that this story has you know i i think that although there are great characters here amthor is not one of them he's a no. bad character yeah then the road twisted into a hairpin turn and the big tires scratched over loose stones and the car tore less soundlessly up a long driveway lined with the wild geraniums. At the top of this, faintly lighted, lonely as a lighthouse, stood an eyrie, an eagle's nest, an angular building of stucco and glass brick, raw and modernistic and, not, and yet not ugly, and altogether a swell place for a psychic consultant to hang out his shingle. Nobody would be able to hear any screams." Like that that's foreshadowing, yes, but Marlowe mm -hmm. already knows he's in trouble and it's really just how this is gonna happen. But the interior of Amthor's place matches the exterior like there's a it's a great balance here, you know. We've got mm -hmm. a turreted room. There was a light and a t and I stepped out into a turret room where the day was still trying to be remembered. Like what a beautiful sentence, hey? Mm-hmm. Where the day was still trying to be remembered. There were windows all around it. Far off, the sea flickered. Darkness prowled slowly on the hills. There were paneled walls where there were no windows and rugs on the floor where the soft colors of old Persians. And there was a reception desk that looked as if it had been made of carvings stolen from an ancient church. And behind the desk, a woman sat and smiled at me. A dry, tight, withered smile that would turn to powder if you touched it. And then he's ushered into a room. It was octagonal, draped in black velvet from floor to ceiling with a high remote black ceiling that might have been a velvet too the reason like i mean we could go on and talk about the lusterless curtains and all of that stuff but the reason that i i'm wanting us to focus on details like this in the investigation side of things is because like the big sleep the investigation of farewell my lovely is very much follow put on your seatbelt and go with it right i get that but Part of our investigation involves the writing style, and I think the writing style here is a bit more mature than it was in The Big Sleep. Um, I really like the way this book is put together. The marks that I've taken off for investigation have to do with some of these little parts of the story that nah, I just didn't really jive with me. I, maybe a little overcomplication. Like, I thought that Laird Burnett was a bit of a... Um, a, a bit like Eddie Mars, you know, he's just a yeah. bit of, I'm following him, but why? Because ultimately it doesn't amount to very much, you know, like he's, yeah. he's not the guy that I find interesting. Um, it's the people working under or for him that I find interesting. I went for a four with my investigation overall, but it was a very engaging investigation to be on. And I like Marlowe's work with Anne. I like his, which is kind of like a My Girl Friday or a Velma from Scooby-Doo type thing, you know? She's an interesting character herself. Um, and yes. I, I like particularly the investigation as he's partnered up, I guess I use the word partnered loosely, but partnered up with, um, uh, what's his Randall? name? 
Randall. I really like Randall. Yeah, when they I go like to his Mrs. Florian's, uh, when they, yeah. Well, first they go to Mrs. Robinson, and then he yeah. uh-huh. pretty much destroys her. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. I also I really yeah. like that sequence, too, when that happens. is because you can tell that he finds Marlowe a bit of an interloper because he's not a full cop. And mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. it really I think that scene with, with with Mrs. Robinson really shows that Randall is good police, like he's not corrupt, like he is like, you know, yeah, he's ruthless, yeah. but he gets the job done and he can't stand people like Mrs. Robinson who are just making lies up for the sake, you know, of their own reasons. So he kind of finds her an interloper as well, obviously. Yes. And I kind of feel yeah. that like that's kind of some of the reasons why he resents Marlowe. I think that was a good example of that. He resents him, but then also uh, then also trust initially. Him. Yeah, trust initially. Him, yes. Yeah. There, there's a really neat interplay between these two characters. And if I was to recommend, you know, listeners to kind of one part of the story, I would maybe say pay attention to his relationship with Marlowe because I think it's one of the more sophisticated developments in the story. Randall yes. and Marlowe share theories and data drops along the way. Um, you know, chapter 29, I think it's chapter 29. Yeah, chapter 29 is a really curious chapter. It, it's helpful to a point because it is sort of like a data drop or a summary of what's been going on and you can feel the stitching together of the two short story ideas or whatever here you can feel the structural visibility of what's going on but i think that chandler's willingness to link the threads here is more clever and and then than it was in the big sleep like chapter the chapter does kind of stick out a little bit because it is it's kind of like a textual equivalent of, of a of a break between tw- tennis matches or something like that, like where the, yeah. the, the players go down to sit and then we get to talk about what happened. You know, there is that. Or maybe maybe a better analogy is the rebuffering of information. You know, you're waiting for your show to buffer if you're, you don't have a great internet signal. And so you're waiting <laughs> so you can think about what happened and then you're going to get on for the second part of it, right? Like That's true. There is that sense of chapter 29, Randall coming into the story to let Marlowe talk about what happened so that the reader can catch up. But yeah, that's when I think he it's returns better. from the bug house, right? And from some exactly. Space, yeah. Right? yeah. But, I, but I think that I think that it works here. It works. And I think it works because we've got a character who we've met before, not just dropped in there and that we will meet again. And that is starting to earn a bit of trust. If Randall was just some random guy thrown into the story and Marlowe started trusting him with all this information, I wouldn't buy it. But because he's been woven into the story more carefully at the beginning, the trust, distrust has been planted, then the trust and then a little bit more trust. Now I can buy this scene, which is really just or this chapter, which is really just a big data drop. Right. I I can buy it. And I like that. And I think it's more sophisticated. It's not just a data dump. Exactly. Like it's uh, it feels natural, organic. Yeah, Yeah, I can see Marlowe having this this character. So anyway, that that's me. I went four for investigation. I really like the way this this story wraps up as well. It is a bit pat. I get it, but um, I I kind of liked it. And I remember Josh, we were talking off air about uh, when we we respectively uh, called it that Velma was Grail, and it came for me on the couch where she talked about getting married under a different name. Okay, yeah. I going back now. When I did it get definitely... you? When did it get you? Um. Uh, it wasn't the couch scene, but I just I j- just came to the conclusion, I think, just because of the structure of the story. And and again, the Chekhov's gun pr- principle I've talked about before, wherein like they mentioned Velma uh, and then she and then they clearly say that she's dead from Mrs. Florian, who is not a reliable source. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To yeah. me, it, it just felt like she had to appear somewhere in the novel. And by that point, who in the story? Be, like I knew it, I, at first for, for one moment there, I thought maybe Anne was because she's described as auburn haired. So. I thought maybe Anne might be um, uh, uh, Velma, 
Um, and you know, the whole story about her father being a cop and then being the chief of police and then, and then being cashiered and maybe she was out on her own and she had no one and then she became a singer and then that's how she got tied up with Moose Malloy. Um, that could also connect her to the scene of Marriott's death as well. I knew there was some connection going on, but yeah, it was just kind of the point where I'm going like, okay, so, um, we established Lair Brunette, but I don't think he's responsible for killing Marriott. So who else mm-hmm. then? Mm-hmm. Then it's gotta be Mrs. Grail because she had the jewels. So I kind of, I oh, also yeah, kind of found, good. yeah. Yeah. So it just to me, it just like it just kind of fell into place. So that's how I figured it out. But good point about them sitting on the couch and her mentioning under assumed name. That was one piece of detail that Chandler had to mention to serve the story to get it going along. But it also kind of revealed, you know, it gives you a clue to her true true identity in the end. Well, I don't think I would have got that had I not read The Big Sleep, where I learned not to not to trust, (laughs) not to trust, you know, the the female uh, characters. Yeah. Both, yeah, both, and not just Carmen, but also Vivian mm-hmm. for co- for covering things up, right? So, yeah, because it didn't, it uh, didn't, it didn't make sense to me. Why would a showgirl not want someone to know she was a showgirl? That just didn't make sense to me, and yeah. that that kind of got my my hackles raised a bit. Yeah, so yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, overall, like, yeah, the structure, I think, though, like, compared to the last novel, as you mentioned, like, yes, this is a bunch of stories t- t- stitched together, but you don't really feel it in this one. I feel like everything just kind of organically um, evolves. Like, you have, at the beginning, you have um, Marlo running into Moose Malloy, and that leads to the Moose Malloy situation of Florian's, um, and the fact that Nolte would investigate Montgomery's death, um, and, and, you know, that also brought you know about his curiosity as we mentioned and that Mm -hmm. leads to mrs florian then that leads to mrs florian calling marriott that marlo came to visit that leads to marriott telling um mrs grail about the situation and that she wants then marriott to arrange marlo's death uh they plan to kill him instead but what happens though is of course mrs grail seeing him as a weak link she kills marriott uh, and then just lets the whole thing kind of like try to as a way to kind of like get that weak link off her to protect her, her her identity. Now, would she have come for Mrs. Florian at some point? I don't know because with Marriott dead, what happens to to the trustee? Does Mrs. Grail get it or does it get revealed? Like, so I'm just wondering what was her plan for Mrs. Florian in the end? Yeah, but that's Moose a good Malloy, point. But yeah. Moose, but Moose Malloy kind of took care of that for her anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was convenient in that respect. But mm-hmm. I do like how it developed from this story about Moose Malloy uh, looking for this girl and then all of a sudden developed into, you know, overall corruption in a local police department, um, all connecting to Mrs. Grail in some way. All of the politics, you get basically kind of like that Dickens from the top to the bottom kind mm-hmm. of thing of society in, mm-hmm. in this book. And you all see it through Marlowe's perspective. So it had the great kind of social commentary in it. But this, and, and in terms of Chandler's style, we already talked about. Yeah. But in terms of story from beginning to end, like it was both, you know, like it was sardonic and it was amusing and fun. It was an adventure, a bit of escapist. But at the same time, it was also a bit of a tragedy as well. Mm-hmm. And I really, I really yeah. love the ending. Even though it was, as you said, a little pat, I really love the ending of Farewell, My Lovely. Like that moment where Moose realized this girl betrayed him, like that is ice cold. And then like you felt really bad for Moose in that situation, despite even the fact that, you know, he Yeah, killed, he's a killer and a racist. He's a, he's a killer and a racist. Yeah. Like uh-huh. you you kind of felt bad for him that all this thing, all this struggle was because of that. And then mm-hmm. at the same time, because of what he was and she said, get away from me, you son of a bitch. Like, did she actually, was she scared of him? Is that why she turned I think so, yes. She's yeah. an evil person? So she's not exactly evil herself. There's a moral ambiguity to her character as well. Uh-huh. So 
I just found that, yeah, like the shades of gray in this story was great. I liked how it all connected. It did seem more organic than the big sleep. It wasn't like, you know, okay, all of a sudden we're doing this case now because I just thought about this. More, now it's more about like <laughs> we're following where all the all the trails are leading and going different directions. Mm-hmm. It's, more, it's more like, you know, Byzantine that way, but at end it leads up to a conclusion that ties off all the loose ends in a pat way. But in terms of someone who's writing like a screenplay or writing a book, uh, in terms of narrative structure, it fits together very well. Yeah, and it so does. I, yeah. I give it a four and a half. Okay, four and a half. Cool. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm. it's still follow me and it's not necessarily a play fair mystery in that strict sense of the term but well, the writer is always holding back information like where mm-hmm. do we get is there a moment in the story that we know that marlo uh realizes uh you know that grail is um Vilma? we only really get that like in in his thought process like once the reveal occurs mm-hmm. we get the hint spread out through the through the novel and then as a story as it were but in Mar- in marlo's authorial voice though he, he, there is no hint whatsoever that he thinks Mrs. Grail is Velma. Well, he end. he is speaking to, um, is it Anne he speaks to, or is it Randall he speaks to, where he talks about Marriott being a blackmailer of women, and mm-hmm. that could be one place where we're we get we're given an idea that yes. he might have thought of her also in that That's capacity, true. but we don't know. We don't know. Yeah, um, but again, I guess mm. that's the whole thing of the mystery novel, right? Is that the writer is going to hold yeah, back information yeah, from the writer yeah. because they want to get that gotcha moment, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and that's what it's all about. It's that twist, right? It's the yeah. fine, it's it, it gives it's, it's it's what the reader expects. So you have to give it to them no matter what. So that is going to take you out of the story, yes. But at the same time, it's expected. So it's one of just one of those kind of like those uh, stuff that you know takes you out of the immersion, but it, but you get pulled back in mm-hmm. as a whole and you appreciate the whole. Mm-hmm. If it's done well, you appreciate the, the brilliance of it all. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And I agree. And I would also say, just as a closing point on investigation, that this is an investigation that's easier to follow as a reader. You're not just kind of playing along until you're given a big dump at the end of here's what's really going on. I find that you're more yeah. welcome to play along in this one than you were with The Big Sleep. And you can make I, your I own appreciate that. You can yeah. have your own hypotheses yeah. as you're going along. Okay, you're only two or three steps behind the protagonist instead of twelve. You know, I find exactly. that, that that's kind of what exactly. that runs in the benefit of this story. Right. Okay. Cool. Um, but I still think Randall Randall is is a great part of the story. And when I reread this book, because I do honestly think I will, um, Randall is the part I'm going to really look for to enjoy. Because mm. I I was aware talking about it with you and preparing for this chat that Randall is is kind of an unturned stone in a lot of ways. And to continue with the the James Bond analogy side of things here, like I know it's 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 kind of naff, it's kind of silly, but I don't <laughs> think it's too dissimilar to some of the M Bond stuff. I mean, apart from the paternal mm. surrogate thing notwithstanding i i think that this sort of protocol of okay he knows right randall knows damn well that and both characters know that marlo isn't going to back away but randall needs to say it and marlo needs to hear it and that protocol of give and then ignore give and then ignore each to the other's knowing i think is built out of a respect for each other that is kind of mm. like m knows that bond's going to do something that bond doesn't shouldn't be doing but M's going to yes. let him do it because that's going to help him in the big long, in the big run and I think that right. there is this is there's a depth there to these two characters I hope Randall comes back into it because he's an he's That'd an interesting great. guy yeah uh right perpetrator I'll be quick on this buddy um yeah the, we 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 talked about we kind of so did yeah and, and about Mrs. Grail as well so is is it a black and white situation with those two perpetrators and you also got to look at two I guess Brunette is his perpetrator yeah um John Wax then, John Wax mm-hmm. and uh, not so much Galbraith, but uh, Blaine for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think who else would, would probably be in there as well. Montgomery, but I mean, he was just a crook who ran the bar around yeah, Florence. Yeah. 
I think you got uh, you got Miss Morrison. You Mrs. know, Rob- I mean, like, Mrs. Mrs. Robinson is or whatever her name was. Yeah, Miss Morrison. Was the, yeah. She, she was the villain of the story, in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> gossips are terrible people. So. <laughs> but she is like she's kind of somewhere in between because she is holding back information. And yes. and that's really interesting. You know, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, they're they're OK. They're, they're definitely fine. That's it's it's not the best part of the story for me. I went three and a half on principle on perpetrators because they're interesting and they give you enough of a story to follow. Marriott is himself, four. you know, Marriott is 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 bad. You were a four. Okay, cool. Moose Malloy, Jesse Florian. Florian is kind of a creepy bad woman, but she's also a victim herself, you know? Yes. Amthor is a big bad in my books. Dr. Sonderborg yes. is a bad. Yeah. He's a baddie, you know? There, there, uh, there's some colorful uh, villains, I guess, or antagonists in the yeah, story, you could there say. Are, you know? There are. Like, yeah. like, yeah, you get, you know, Mrs. Grail as the big kind of villain of the story, I suppose, because she's Velma. But at the same time, though, like, uh, there's, there's sympathetic viewings to her where she's not a exactly a bad mm-hmm. person she might just be totally scared the hell out of moose malloy uh, mm-hmm. scared by moose malloy and then she wanted to hide away from that life and live the life that she lived I she think even so. shoots herself because there's a there, there, what chandler even is, states is that you know she, she the man that you know that she like used uh, to get where she got to mr grail um he knew that he loved her dearly in her mm-hmm. in, in his own way and mm-hmm. she didn't want to cause him any more pain and that's the reason why she took her life yeah i, yeah. I mean i know that yeah. sounds terrible in a modern perspective that a woman took her life for a man um but you know that's just what this the writing was at this time and i hear you Mar- yeah. Chandler was writing about at the time that's what he wanted to convey that's the story that he wanted to tell like mm-hmm. he wasn't interested. One thing I really like about in the in the works of Marlowe is I don't get a lot of sexism like in his writings. Uh, I know I know this isn't the topic, the, 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 you know, the category that we're talking about. But I find that uh, Chandler, you can definitely see his chivalry and also his respect towards women is here. Like he doesn't over sexualize um, some women. The one that he does are the ones that are usually fallen, though, for example, like the Madonna. He, he does have the Madonna whore aspect 100 um, percent. I mean, look at Carmen Sternwood, right? But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. But I, I don't know. I'm ready to meet you there on that playing field just yet. Yeah, I, I think I want another book or two under my belt before I yeah, make that, that I, statement. I think but that's good. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying uh, though about this let's particular get our story. Rallied over a couple of books and then we'll have her battle yeah. over that. Yeah, but I think uh, yeah, I mean the lines of good and bad are blurred, and of course that's exactly what Mar- what Chandler's trying to say here about America and Los Angeles and that and that sort of crime yeah. world. You've got a lot of good cops who, and you got you got like guys like Sergeant Galbraith. You know, I, I really love that uh, moral rearmament stuff that they talk yeah. about about MRA. just <laughs> yeah, just about. Um, clean and clean in the slate and you know no hard feelings for what I did and uh, here's a little tip that might help you you know those uh, those boats they're registered yes. blah 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 like I do like that Galbraith is an interesting character and uh, I think he lives somewhere in the between but he gives an excellent justification for why he does things like he does for Amthor to make money you know like some of us cops don't get a chance to become good at our jobs some of us are kept here and because of that because of the corruption within the force we need to find things to do to get us out of the corruption and sometimes those things are corrupt themselves so there's a real uh, a labyrinthine network of corruption that is hinted at here in the story and i I like it i really like it yeah yeah, even Amthor even has like his own perspective on things that he sees himself as a good guy in his own way. He's saying is is that like, you know, yeah. these other these other like practicing doctors and stuff, they're the they're the cracks, not him. Mm-hmm. He's the one that sees that does things correctly. Yeah. So even he sees himself as a good guy, which all villains should. I mean, they should always see themselves yeah. as the protagonist in their own story. Totally, I agree with you, and I think Amthor could be really. I think he's that interesting. So I went uh, I went for a four uh, with my my prince or my perpetrators as well. Now. 
environment, Josh. We don't have the time to go through it, but I think this book. Um, I, I think the style that we already talked about in the investigation. We did, yeah. Clarifies yeah. the environment. But I the, wanted, the settings inside and the settings outside in this book, I think, are phenomenal. They kept me interested. They kept me really, um, really sort of uh, admiring Chandler's ability with language. I love the description he gives these exterior spaces. We we talked about Amthor's place, but the interiors of all the different rooms, Marriott's place, the Grail residence. There is so much attention to detail here, and none of it Marlo's really feels Marlowe's office. Marlo, that's uh, right. The, the, but, the police station with like its little bugs and and stuff, and like the yeah, mattress right, on yeah, the, yeah. the floor. But none of it feels uh, none of it feels unnecessary to me. It all feels like it's part of what kind of uh, master artwork he's trying to produce, and it's giving me. I mean, it's really, really vivid stuff. I, I went full marks for environment because I'm so interested in every place in this story. I wasn't as interested in Eddie Mars's casino. I wasn't as interested in... Geiger's um, house. Nah, or... just... Well, Geiger's house was cool, but... You know, in this book, this book is full of interesting and well-described oh, places. And I mean, whether it's a staircase on the way up to Marriott's house or a drive through Los Angeles, as you read for us a few moments ago... All the environments of this story uh, are just phenomenal and really, really interesting, like storyboard image type thing. And I, I love all this stuff. And I can imagine a guy like a guy like uh, Ken Adam having an absolute field day doing a, a film like this, you know? Yeah, 100 percent. So and I went I full a- marks for a five and I haven't done that in a long, long time on the show. Yeah, I was waving at a four and a half to a five, but I went. I think a five is a perfect um, mark for, for it. Um, every location, every detail that he had was just. Uh, again, it goes into his style, which is part of the investigation uh-huh. aspect. I know, but I feel that uh, the environs was a key part of the story, and uh, it, yeah, it was just fantastic overall. Yeah. and just go back to another great description. I, I the, the concept of like the of the uh, Montecito, the gambling ship, how he got aboard it through the mm-hmm. ventilation shaft, and all the description of going through the decks and like yep. the machine gun mount that was it's there up, up, yeah. up on the main deck and going into going into brunette's um uh lair and everything everything like like that in a stateroom um that does have some real life inspiration there was a ship called the ss rex um and according to uh tom williams just a little brief thing on it here it's a vessel owned by former bootlegger and gambling entrepreneur tony cornero in the 1930s, gambling was illegal in California, and so to get around the law, ship anchored three miles off the coast, which they could claim to be in international waters. Mm-hmm. In 1938, Conero opened the Rex, making sure it was a clean, safe ship, that it was open 24 hours a day, that there was good food and drink, that the ferry from the mainland was cheap and efficient. This system made sure that ships like the Rex got steady supply of high rollers, but also importantly that they attracted a different kind of customer, the middle classes. As soon as the wrecks opened, Cornero ran into trouble with the law and Burren Fitz, then district attorney, unsuccessfully tried to have the ship shut down. But it was not until 1939 that California Attorney General Earl Warren was finally able to do so. And then only after a standoff that saw the crew turn a fire hose onto police officers attempting to board. <laughs> wow. With, with the wrecks out of action, Cornero moved to Las Vegas, Nevada, taking the business model with him and establishing the sort of casinos that are still familiar today interesting so yeah just 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 to give an example there mm. uh of, of you know like where the real life comes into play in marlo and marlo's world uh in chandler's novels like i just think that's awesome. a really cool thing cool. that he drafted into the story that he knew about and he brought it into the real world like he does many things mm-hmm. and that's why his books feel so real while at the same time being escapist which is just, which is a great mix in my opinion 
Cool. Well, I'm surprised we've seen eye to eye on every segment of this so far. I thought because I, I, earlier in the week you had said that you you thought you were enjoying the big sleep more than this, and uh, I never felt I, that way. I always felt well, that this I was, was also it. not as far into the novel at that point as well. Fair enough. Fair point. Yeah, you're right. You're right. This is a grower. It is certainly a grower. Well, um, as for secondary characters, this is another standout category for me. I am interested with everybody we've got here, and I, I don't think yes. they're wasted. In in they're some right. cases, we we don't get development of Sonderborg. We don't really understand what his whole shtick is. Um, but he has do... his own story. He does. He does. Yeah, there. he could be he's his own little story. Char- yeah. Character mm-hmm. in his in, in his own little world, you know, like in his own in his own separate novel. There might be a whole story of of Doctor Sonberg you can write, but yeah. he lives within this world that we're yeah. reading, and and That's and cool. he works because of that. Mm-hmm. You can see that there is a background that in even in this writing that there was a background that Raymond Chandler probably conceived for him uh, so that he could write him into the story so that it worked yeah, right I mean, totally. every author has to has to do that mm-hmm. you're right and I think the same could be said of John Wax Miss um, Morrison Mrs. Morrison is an interesting character in her own right along with Jesse Florian I mean you've got a really great supporting cast here but you know I think one of the standout guys for me that you mentioned in your plot summary is Red Norgard this this cop who gets his job back at the end and there's a lot of there's a nice little ending there for him but I also think that there's a deliberate or I think there's there's a connection that we're meant to make there as readers and maybe this is a structural or thematic thing as well about how Anne's father was a good cop that lost his job you know at Bay City and And now yeah exactly (laughs) so Red, Red Norgard gets gets his job back is that something that's trying to say what what do you think he's trying to do there with that it's interesting hey yeah that that's a good point and uh yes it's definitely a parallel Anyway, and Anne's, Anne's a, a good character, too. It's too bad that we see Marlowe kind of giving her the cold shoulder a lot because there is a keenness to her. There is, there is like I said, a My Girl Friday or like a, a little mini investigator there herself. And I don't yeah, use they the have this Yeah, ho- they have like this Hoxian dialogue between each other. Yeah, they do. And I think she's yeah. a clever, uh, obviously attractive character that, that could, more could have been done with her. But um, ultimately, she was there to do what she did. She brought the connection um, she's a bit of a help to Marlowe when he's down. She obviously is interested in him, but she's independent and strong and strong-willed enough not to swoon at his feet, and I respect that. Plus, she does make the connection for him. She she organizes the meeting with Grail, which is good. You know, that's, that's her own little thing. So it's neat that she had a way around Randall before Marlowe did, you know, by using mm-hmm. her dad's history. I thought that was really cool. But yeah, the, the supporting cast in this novel is great. I don't, you know, the best thing I can say for this novel, and I have given it a very good score of 22 out of 25 um i'm giving full marks for supporting characters and full marks for environment i don't think oh. anybody's going to pick up this story and be bored by the people in it or the places they go i think it's a lot of fun to read it is it is full of uh, of of prejudice and racist language and vernacular and vernacular that's very uncomfortable most of which isn't spewed by our character that we're following but a lot of it is is still very much part of his world and it's part of Chandler's existence and we you know you have to accept it but it does detract from what you want you know in I mean he was a man that was raised adventure. at Dulwich you know yeah, like he, yeah. he he was a British man in at, at heart and at yeah. the time of, of yeah. high colonialism you know right. when he was, he was born into mm-hmm. so he does have this mindset unfortunately he does and yeah. uh, it's, it's it's sad you know that talent comes with with you know that mindset but you have to mm-hmm. understand is that it wasn't kind of like a pathological kind of mindset that he had well I don't think so anyways I don't think it was anything about hatred or anything along those lines it was simply just how he was raised mm-hmm. you know and uh, I, I don't know, maybe someone 
with a more a different moral perspective at that time, which probably did not exist yet. You know, we haven't got to the civil rights movement in America yet. We know Chandler like uh, he lived up until I think like till the late 50s. Um, but, you know, like what would he if he had lived onward or he was a bit younger and then, you know, if he had lived in the 60s and saw the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. What would he thought of that? You know, would his own moral perspective be changed? That's and an that's, interesting point. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, it the is whole thing about is is, is is that people are born with these prejudices or they're raised into them. But it does not necessarily mean that, you know, they can't, you know, shun them off at some point and realize mm-hmm. that they're wrong and and move forward, you know, like. Um, uh, but uh it's just, you know, like we're all human in the end. And um, if we can admit that we're wrong and, and uh, change our ways, then, you know, but we'll never know with Raymond Chandler, unfortunately. We won't, indeed. But no. I, I think that Farewell, My Lovely is an improvement on The Big Sleep in almost every single way. The narrative Stylistically, is, thematically. is a little bit, yeah. And the, and the narrative is a little more direct and followable in the first. Yes. Even if it's maybe, you know, has a, a couple of different antechambers and a couple of more hoops along the way, I find mm-hmm. it easier to follow. There's a, And I think part of this also is because Chandler allows for more lingering here you know we we get to sink into some of these environments a little bit better than we did in the first story um the villains with the exception maybe of brunette and uh, sonderborg are more defined than eddie mara's and company and that's a big mm-hmm. thing for me i need they I were need straight, to yeah they were like them. they were like straight up gangsters i guess you yeah, could say in, yeah. in the first book whereas like in in this like yeah if you look think of like canino and eddie mara's like those mm-hmm. guys were straight up gangsters in this story here you get a more varied like association of i guess villains you, you could say in the dramatis personae you yeah. have sonderberg you have uh second planting um who is also a bit of a racist caricature but oh, maybe he's someone very the much yeah the way he's described though and how he dresses and stuff uh-huh. it seems that mm-hmm. that's something that that Chandler might have saw like of, of, of native americans living in los angeles at the time that that's was true style yeah. adopted yeah. right well uh th- th- i mean that's it I, I went 22 to 25 on the story i really enjoyed yeah. it and i'd recommend my, it on, my, on the merit uh, of that stuff my final mark while mm-hmm. i agree you've given it five marks to this supporting cast because supporting cast is fantastic i gave it the high mark of a four and a half and I don't really see the see the need to, to change that. I, I think I'm happy with the four and a half that I gave that last okay. section. Cool. Well, then that brings you, my good man, to a 21.5. Well-deserved. Mm. Yeah, I'm interested that we saw that so, so, so close. I mean, we, we often see our texts close together on the show. Uh, but, I, I mean, come on, there's nothing in this, really. I think we're saying the same thing about it, aren't we? Yeah, we, we have our own little kind of like, you know, our, our, we have our own prejudices in terms of, you know, what we would have liked to have seen or something that may not have struck us as strongly as the other. But mm-hmm. I think we're on the same on, on the same boat here or gambling ship, I guess, in this case. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I am glad as well that our acronym, our PIPES acronym allows us to talk our way through the narrative because let's make no qualms about it. There's a lot of uncomfortable stuff in this book. There's a lot of language that is, as we were saying, going to upset and it, 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 it isn't, uh, it is of its time. And that's not something that we're celebrating but hopefully if we look at the story and if you guys join us on the journey and read the story you know in terms of the principles the investigation the perpetrator Mm -hmm. the environment and the secondary characters and we try to brush aside and rewrite some of the uh, you know Mm -hmm. the 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 cultural vernacular of norm then uh, i think there's there's a lot to accept and celebrate here in this text yeah, I agree. And I just want to say, too, uh, in the previous episode, I don't know if it was on the show itself or, or it was or I meant or it was in a separate conversation that we had. You mentioned that after the big sleep, you weren't really jazzed, you know, to continue with the Marlowe no, story. No, it wasn't. Now, that perspective I'm taking has has I take it has changed. Yes, it certainly has. And this was the book that did it. Um, and do you know what? I made the note in my margin as soon as this 
opening chapter started and we were thrown right into media res marlo is just throw, dragged up the steps right in, in into florian's that that the story begins i i really liked that and i liked that it hit the ground running i found that that was a good thing to do and i guess second novels you know second stories they have that privilege they can do that because you have established the world and maybe the big sleep was never going to yeah. be as good because you it's know it's the pilot it's the pilot episode it is it's the also, pilot episode it's the yeah. Clunky yeah pilot episode where you're like okay i'll give it another try Okay, this is you know they're just going right to the story. I can just sit down and I can sit That's down. That's right. Just, yeah, I, yeah. And digest this. It is easier as a writer to you know to step back into the shoes of a character you've written and which you only put out there a year and a half ago. You know, you're getting right back to the work, and that's great, but. I feel as though it's an improvement on the same structure. I know that he's still piecing together short stories, but it doesn't feel quite that way here. Do you know? And I I think that anybody who picks up this book will be happy. Yeah. Ultimately, though, and and we have to... We have to come down on the side of this, uh, whether Marlowe is himself or not. It is ultimately a racist text, isn't it? And we had to look at them not just as I think as as like, you know, bibliophiles. Yeah. Yeah. Bibliophiles. We have to also look at him in our own sense as, as amateur historians because we have to, to I guess, try to put ourselves in the shoes of the time period and not judge harshly uh, in terms of a, um, I, I guess, a mentally programmed conditioning of people talking the way that they do about those sorts mm-hmm, of things mm-hmm. back then. Yeah, yeah. Now, we, we can pre- now, we can, you know, judge a a morally bad person in these stories. And if that person is a racist more so than betrayed, then say that person is, you know, like a member of the Ku Klux Klan um, in the story. I mean, we are, we know that guy is a villain a hundred percent. We know everything that he says is that he's meant to be a villain in that respect. But if it's just simply the main character who's showing these kind of attitudes, then that's a bit problematic. But at the same time, we have to realize back then this was simply this was this was just like everyday life, mm-hmm. unfortunately. So um, we have so, to view the text as a historical document as well as a literary story. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I agree with that. And I think that's the best way forward with this series. Same as we did with Sherlock Holmes, you know, and the, yes. the misogyny that often cropped up there. And um, brain yeah, fever. I agree. Brain fever. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, just in closing, my last my last word on Farewell, My Lovely is that I, I appreciate here. It feels to me as though Chandler is leaning back a little bit more and enjoying the pulp side of things, maybe where he wasn't quite sure how serious he wanted his first novel to be. He's now set the serious. He's proven his ability to write serious and to write uh, eloquently. And he's having more fun with the more the adventurous comic book side of stuff with his character yeah. writing. So and, he may and I not like realize that. it. <laughs> he, yeah, he might not realize it. And I don't think that detracts from the story, you know? I mean, no. I love... And I feel a lot of literary merit in the Ian Fleming stories. But to me, this is more of a Bond adventure than we got before, you know? Yeah, I, I, you get that sense of uh, adventure and escapism f- from it. He's not trying to write like an, uh, like a, an extended, like hard, like a short. He's not trying to write like a, a novella mm-hmm. or even like a novel, uh, like a, a novel sized version of one of his Black mm-hmm. Mask short stories. Yeah, yeah. What he's trying to write here is just like it's just uh, he's enjoying the pulpy aspect of it, but he's also putting his own style to it and he's creating yeah. something entirely new with it. And, and we're and still getting and we're still getting little mini essays on or we're still getting asides on Los Angeles and corruption and police forces and all of these things that helped yes. ground the story the, the, historically and seriously. Those themes are continuing like it's yeah. an ever flowing river, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. And so I, I applaud Chandler for this book, uh, even though the language does put me off and, uh, you know, 
we've already, I think we've we've gone through that well enough. But yeah, I'm looking forward to our next one. What is our next one, my good man? The high window. The high window. All right. Well, Chandler continues, Marlowe continues, and lighting the pipes continues. And as we said at the outset, thank you very much for listening and for sticking with us. We know it's yes, been a while getting. You. It's been a while getting to this episode, but uh, we're here now and we're moving on to the high window. If uh, if you like what we do, then let us know. Uh, you know, drop us an email at lightingpipes at gmail dot com. Uh, hit us up on um, Instagram. See, Instagram, yeah. Hit us up on Instagram. Send us an email. Download our shows or check out. Bond by Numbers, which is our other podcast in another world, a galaxy far away, a James Bond world. And we've got a lot of fun stuff planned for that as well. And as Josh said, free the Greeks, his own shameless plug. (laughs) So thanks again for listening, everybody. And we'll see you back here soon for, uh, for the next installment of our Raymond Chandler series. So stay safe out there and continue to do the right things in your neighborhoods, communities, and uh, we'll get through all of this COVID stuff in good time together. MRA. And safely. MRA. Yeah. Moral Re- rearmament. Moral rearmament. <laughs> Thank you, Galbraith. All right. And we'll talk to you soon. Later. Later.